This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. If you're into archery or bow hunting, my guest today needs no introduction. John Dudley, knock on TV, knock on archery on YouTube, and knock on archery. Com. He's been a friend for years, just finished up at the Total Archery Challenge here in Utah yesterday and stopped by today for a conversation. So now, without further ado, John Dudley. You might see that I collaborate with Ironclad on a lot of different projects. In fact, I have worked with them on my book trailers, this podcast, as well as a few other exciting endeavors that are currently in development. Ironclad teams up with some of the biggest brands in the world to create dynamic films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. If you are a brand or individual looking to elevate your content or start a podcast, don't hesitate to reach out through their website. This is ironclad.com and make sure you follow them on all major platforms at this is ironclad. Let's Dudley, what's up, up buddy? <laughs> what is up? <laughs> Thank you for coming up, man. No doubt. Dude. You have been going long so hard. Long overdue, I feel like. It, I know. I know. It feels like one long day, but I realize that it's been a long time since I actually saw you, even though with social and stuff, I feel like I'm, you know, keeping up with what you've been I know. doing. I know. We were talking about, when we first rolled up, we talked about the time where our whole, like, network of friends where we all met together that time in San mm-hmm. Diego we all went and watched Rogan's show together. We were mm-hmm. all in the, in the limousine, all of yeah. us, and... At that time, we all had like a vision of what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't think the first book was the first you, book was out. Yeah, the first book had just but it only came been out by let's see a couple months at that point. Mm-hmm. But like probably for the year prior to that, we all started interacting. Yeah, but like honestly, the book series hadn't began at first. Cleared hot hadn't happened, right? Like Andy was Andy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Jocko had started down the, you know, kind of out of the victory. You know, obviously you had the extreme ownership side of things, but like the Jocko fuel side and the origin side had to start. Like all of our friend networks, even like, you know, Evan was still growing Black Rifle, right? I mean, that was obviously halfway to Black Rifle getting to where it is. Yeah. So we were all just focused on these, what, what our niche was, and we were all just hustling and, you know, we were like, just molecules crossing each other and bouncing, feeding off each other yep. and stuff like that. But time has flown by. It's crazy. I, f- I feel like COVID was just like a black hole yeah. of time to where it's almost like it was like the quantum realm where yeah. we all didn't see each other for a, for a period of time to where our, our like, I don't know, our pattern of like when we mm-hmm. cross each other, I feel like it changed to where now we're all going past the same points, but at like slightly different times. Yeah. It's like, it's like driving through park city one day and you don't hit one light, but then it's like, if you catch the wrong one, you're yeah. like, am I going <laughs> to catch every single one from it's the possible. top to the bottom? It's possible. Yeah. Oh man. I remember at that at performance archery, Bob from, um, Evan on the floor in the corner making coffee for us. He was like grinding the coffee out of that little, his travel pack, Yeah, you know? And I'm good. like, what is that? And I was like taking notes on how he was doing it. And then I went and I bought all, all the, what was it? What's the thing called? The little glass thing where, you know, you make the pour over and all that. Yeah. And the Chemex. The Chemex. And then he had this little black 
Black Raffle Coffee branded little grinder, you yeah. know, for the travel kit and all that stuff. So he made us coffee on the floor. And then when you taught that class, I think it was the next day. And maybe I might be, maybe it was the day before. I think it was the day after we went to Rogan's show where we went back to performance archery and you had a small group of people there and yeah. you went through all the points of performance and all those things. And I remember taking notes and videos and that's what I used in Savage Sun that oh, I wrote right. in like, cause I have like Reese and, and Rafe going through, you know, that's a big one with archery. And uh, uh, then I sent it to you and I said, Hey, is this right? Cause I want to make yeah. sure. So I try to do as much of the work as possible yeah. with what I knew and then what the notes that I take in and all that stuff. And then, and then you went back and, and you edited like, no, do this here and that there and, and that sort of a thing. And so, uh, so we got it in there so that people who are really into it and people that are, that follow knock on and you, and they train and they go out to uh, total archery challenge and link up with you and do all that stuff that they'd read it and be like, Oh wow. You know, this guy at least did his research or, or at least he was smart enough to send this to Dudley to, to, uh, to edit. And, uh, so, so that, that for me, that was that morning. I think it was the morning after Rogan's show where we did that. And I took a bunch of notes and pictures and, uh, and incorporated that all into Savage Sun. That's what makes the books good though, is because you're a, you're kind of a gear nerd and, and you explain the details to where people that are from those different fields, Mm -hmm. they're like, he's actually talking the lingo of, yeah you know, this weapon category or this vehicle category, yeah. you yep. know, you kind of go deep down the rabbit hole of that yep. stuff. So it's been fun. Well, even like we were together when, when you met Chris. Yeah. Yeah. For the first in, in, yeah. in person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like we're out here just about 45 minutes from where we are right now. Yeah. And, uh, Chris and Jared, yeah. us and, and Barclow was there, I think. Yeah. And that was like when, I think when like you, made the pitch to Chris, right? And like, no, he'd already, he already got it, but we hadn't met up in person yet. Okay. So yeah, he got it in January of 2018. Okay. He read it in December. Jared called and hadn't talked to him for like five years because we got out of the SEAL teams and started doing our our things. And then, uh, then he called and uh, wanted to read the book because he, and he knew it was coming out. He heard it was coming out. So I sent it to him about six months in advance. Uh, So November of 2017, I sent it to him and then he gave it to Chris in December and Chris read it in December of 2017, optioned it first week in 2018. Uh, and then we didn't meet up until, was it August, September? It must be September, right? Yeah, it was September, September for sure. Obviously, of, uh, of 2018, of, 20, of 2018. Yeah. I'm trying to think, because I know I've seen Chris a few times, I, but I know that I knew it was coming. Like you had said, I, you know, I think he, yeah. he loves his story and yeah. And honestly, it's, it's perfect. It was a perfect part for him because his relationship with Jared, yeah, like you could tell he loved and respected that part of Jared. Mm-hmm. So for him to be able to like play that role, he knew he could, he couldn't be a poser. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he knew oh, it was he very important because to like, yeah, a hundred percent. I was like, this is going to be a cool dynamic because honestly, Jared's in, Chris's real tight network of circle of trust Mm -hmm. and the fact that he could like look at someone that is looking out for his best interests immediately and like how he's portraying that, that role. I knew it'd be good. Yeah, no, he was all in obviously uh, on all he dub. He was very passionate about, uh, about this and is excited about what's ahead, which is super cool. And I love when my, when those, uh, you know, 
being attached to your phone, there's obviously some negatives there. But I like when the memories pop up. And every now and again, that memory will pop up. And it's uh, you, me, Rogan, and Jared at that place down the road here where we were. Chris. Where we were. Yeah. Chris, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and all of us together there, which was really, really cool. So I see that pop up. I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. A lot's happened since then. Well, you know what's crazy is I was somewhere with Rogan. And uh, I got up early in the morning and I went to work out. And I'm in there working out. And, uh, I, you know, Chris wears one hat where if I see him in that hat, I, I'm going to know it's Chris. Mm. Like, even if he pulls it down, there's one hat that he wears where like, to me, that was the giveaway. And so I'm in there working out and he's, you know, a lot of times if someone's high profile, they're going to work out, but like try to not be facing where they're like uh. making eye contact with people. And so I just like sent a text and I'm like, <laughs> either I'm looking at your doppelganger or, we're working out next to each other. No way. And all of a sudden, I like sent. I was like, Zoop. and all of a sudden, I hear because <laughs> he he was getting ready. He was literally becoming Reese, nice. right? So he was like, he was like doing all his ab work on the floor, yeah. and all of a sudden, he just like pops up over the machines, and he's like, "Dude, no way!" Because <laughs> he was on his honeymoon. Oh, I know where you were. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he's just like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like, "I said, sweet man." But that just goes that's dedication you. right there. Well, yeah, man, working out on the honeymoon, Chris, man, that's <laughs> off. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty cool and such a, such a down to earth guy. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. And did you build, when we linked up out here in Utah, did you build a bow for him for that? Or who's using his own bow then? Um, no, I had built one for them cause I've ahead built of time. several. Yeah. I've built it in 2018. Yeah. So ahead of time I've built several. And so yeah. that was, um, at the time, that was when I was with Hoyt still. Mm -hmm. His first one was with a Hoyt. Mm -hmm. And then when I switched over, you know, when people kind of see in my social media what I'm doing, friends, sometimes mm -hmm. they'll be like, hey, I see you're going down this. Anything we can do to help you and support you, let us know. Yeah. And so, yeah, he kind of said that. And he's like, obviously, I knew the movie was or the series yeah. was coming out ahead of time. Like, because that was, you know, probably two years prior to mm -hmm the rest of the world, like having the big launch. Yeah. So he kind of said, which one do you want? Like, what do you want for, for props and the thing? So I just said, well, let me, honestly, I said, I don't want to build you a new one because Reese is a killer. And I said, Reese needs a legit killing bow. So nice. the bo the bow that Reese had actually had killed an elk. Nice. And so if you look at the details, there's like even blood in that knock That's because awesome. it's, I wanted like, like, you have difference in the details, especially with gear. And yeah. I thought, don't just have a brand new shiny bow. Like this yeah. thing needs to have some scrapes off it. This string should be a little bit fuzzy, nice. you know? So that's, that's what everyone remembers from the intro to the series. Yeah, right there. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's like one of these right here. Yeah. I mean, there it is. The There's PSE first. right here. We got the little Sitka camo on this one. This is the one you built, built for me. Chris's is very similar. And then uh, right in the beginning of the show, right in the opening credits, yeah. you know, boom. And you never know with the opening credits because you you uh, you hire a, a company that just does credits. Right. And so you kind of give your, your vision or whatever. And uh, then they go to work and they they send you um, 50,000 different B-roll clips. Couple different, uh, <laughs> a couple different options. Yeah. And then you talk about them as a, the, the executive producers talk about them and Chris and everybody and weigh in. And then it goes back and forth a, a few times till you get it uh, whittled down or change it to, to, to be what it ends up being in the end. But, uh, but yeah, so 
So your, your bow arrows made it, you know, it's kind of an artsy kind of, you know, out of focus, in focus type mm -hmm. thing as the, as the credits are playing. But then if people look, they can see in his office that there's the, the knock on mat is right there. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make it in obviously to yeah. final, oh, yeah. final cuts. Cause so much gets edited out, but and there's uh, more to come. It's not like, it's not like that was just the end. Right? That's it. That's it. Yeah. And what's awesome about that is the people that notice is like, our true followers that have been with us since the beginning. It's yeah. kind of like there's people that have started. I've got friends that are Jack Carr nice. from the first book all the way to, through to the last. And when they see the little background things like on your prop set and stuff nice. like that, they notice the little trinkets and the details. Yeah. So we had a lot of people DMing us saying awesome. like, that's this out of focus. I can tell nice. like in the background and, and, um, like even the picture of Chris with that elk. Mm. Yeah. Like, people, only a few people uh, see, caught I, that. I, yeah, I, I picked up on that right away because obviously I know, uh, you know, the politics of how much of that side of your personal life actors and mainstream media people, you know, are comfortable showing because some of it's just personal, you know, for Chris, I knew it was personal because he's a legit hunter and a legit fisherman. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not just playing that part. He's really passionate about it. You know, he he sent like some charcuterie one time. But like with that came the whole story of like the sheep and the family nice. that that like does this all for him. Oh, and awesome. it was like, OK, this guy isn't you know, this is mm -hmm. the hunting side and that that side he's really passionate about it shows yeah. who he is uh, that's important cool. to the character too i mean i, I always think like it'd be hard like i i had chris in mind from the very beginning before guardians of the galaxy before jurassic world before all that stuff just when it was he was in zero dark 30 very mm -hmm. small part as a seal and then uh in parks and rec so two very different roles but yeah. i saw that range and he just seemed like a like a like, like a good guy. Yeah. And so I, so as I was writing it, I thought of him playing the role. I didn't think of James Reese as him. I thought of Chris playing that role eventually. But then now I think like if it had been somebody else that ended up with it and they weren't a hunter, they weren't like a, a guy's guy, you know, and they were just acting like, yeah, maybe it, it works out, but I think it'd be missing that authenticity part of it that's so important uh, today to people who are choosing who to spend their time with, whether yeah. it's on social media or it's reading a book or it's watching a film or whatever else. Um, like I think, yeah, it could have worked with somebody else, but it wouldn't have been what it is because of that personal He's touch perfect. point that Chris has with the character and then from his background. Um, so anyway, so I think it's, so yeah, there was nobody else in my mind uh, when I started writing it that, uh, that, that, that could have pulled, I mean, that what that could have played James Reese. I mean, somebody could have done it, but like you said, without those personal real touch points that are authentic, it would have been When he got to work with people that are close to his personal circle. Yeah. Which then, it, then, you know, I think that came across. Yeah. So did, do you think Chris's part was zero dark 30? Do you think that kind of like flipped that little switch of like, me being a seal was like legit. And I assume Jared and him were still, yeah, because they, that's were, where they that's met. That's where they met. That's mm -hmm. right. I that's where they that. met. I yeah. remember because he went to, uh, down to buds. He went down to buds. Mm -hmm. Right. So came he was down. on Coronado. Yep. Okay. Came down and Jared was one of the instructors that got to take that. Two actors came down. Chris was one of them and uh, they ran the O course and checked everything out and, and all that sort of thing. And then, uh, yeah, they, they hit it off and have been best buds ever since. So, that's cool. Yeah. Now Jared, Jared plays boozer. And so he plays Chris's buddy in the in Reese's buddy in mm -hmm. the series. Uh, he's an executive producer now in this next one that we're doing. He was a producer last time. Um, so help, I mean, uh, just like 
so I advised on the scripts last time, same thing with Jared. And now this next time, um, he's writing on it. So executive producer, uh, it's just, it's awesome to see, uh, to see him grow in this new profession that he's so passionate about and have it be attached to this project with Chris and with me and our other buddy, Ray Mendoza, who does the technical advising. And it's just a great team. Really cool. It's almost strange to think back at how far it was when the book launched, because you remember I was with um, a guy that you don't know, Sharon and I were in Times Square when the first blip came up on Times Square. Really? I remember I well Savage not, I mean, Savage Sun I remember and you sent somebody down there. It I was think. the first. Or you it, asked somebody to go take yeah, a picture. I saw it and I ended up calling back down. I'm like, will you stand there until it hits rotation again? And I'm like, dude, you're on Times Square, like it's That's right crazy. here. I don't know. Was it the first? Or I second think it book? was Savage Sun. I'm not positive. So I think it was the third one because that was the archery side of it, which is why your uh, buddy kind of noticed it and stayed there, sent you the picture. Yeah. Cause he knew there was the the connection with that book in particular. Right. And then, and then I'm like, Oh man, that's awesome. Cause it was COVID. Yeah. So oh, I think that was my right. first time being in times square and for it to be in times square at a time when no one else was in yeah. times square <laughs> was like, Oh, cause it's April of, uh, April of 2020. Yeah. And when oh the, my when the book came out. So that's, that's when right. still people were locked down. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, finally in times square, there's nobody there to see it. And, uh, and then you had your buddy go take some pictures, which was awesome. Do you ever, do you ever wish you would have taken one different direction? Are there certain, are you just like, this is his path and all I'm doing is like seeing the next turn ahead. I mean, have you ever thought like now that I'm this far down, I should have just taken one turn differently back there. Or do you think? No, you, I mean, little things probably. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Little things here and there you want to refine because we always want to refine and do better going forward, take lessons from the past, apply them going forward as wisdom. So it makes sense to analyze what you've done in the past so you can grow right. uh, and do things better going forward. But uh, but nothing nothing huge. I think it's more refinements. I think it's more the, the stumbles that any entrepreneur or business person is going to take on the business side out of the gate just because you don't, you don't know. Yeah. And then coming out of the SEAL team is like, everything looks great to me, you know, business wise. Like I, there's, uh, there's a difference I think between being a businessman and being an entrepreneur. And that's why you have an entrepreneur that starts a business and then eventually sells it maybe or hands it off to a CEO and people who, uh, who have experience building companies and doing that sort of a thing. And those are, I think those are a little different off. Sometimes they can be the same, yeah. but I think a lot of times it's different. And, uh, for me, Definitely, I have an entrepreneurial type of a mindset. Had that in the SEAL teams. You have to because you're adapting to this enemy who's always adapting to you. So you have to be creative uh, and uh, you have to be aggressively creative on the battlefield. Same thing here as an entrepreneur doing these things just like you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very similar. Um, but uh, but different, I think, once you like like reading a contract. It all looks like Greek to me, but it also looks great. Yeah. Like this sounds wonderful. Everything <laughs> looks great after the SEAL teams. Like this sounds wonderful. So I think there's mistakes on that side of the house, certainly. Um, but uh, but now as you as you grow and you professionalize, and now you realize it's time to bring in some people that really know what they're doing on that side, oh, so yeah. that I can do what I love, which is the creative part, which is the writing. Um, and then I but I still love doing the things that uh, that that help grow at that stage. Like when you're still in the garage, like you're building a computer company in 1977 and you're in your garage and you've built this thing and no one knows it exists and you're the person who builds it, uh, who gets the word out about it. You're the CEO, the CFO, the CMO. If there was social media back then, you'd be the social media manager. You're all of it and you're all in on it and then it grows and people start to find out about it and people start buying them and telling their friends and then it grows and grows and grows and eventually you need to professionalize some of that so you can go back to 
maybe you do like the the part that is the, the building yeah. or maybe now you hand that side off and you love the the marketing side of it or whatever or right. you like bridging that gap or you find your niche that helps add value overall so um so i think there so there's nothing i look back on and say man if only i'd taken that left turn when i when i did when i went right and i didn't mean man so i don't have those kinds yeah they're more smaller and i'm more probably the, the stumbles that anybody in business is going to is going to encounter do you think the favorite part about the the direction of the books do you think it's kind of the the gruesomeness of like when he gets mad (laughs) that part is certainly therapeutic uh and keeps me out of prison (laughs) which is nice so yeah before you go too far because like part of me thinks like if you didn't have any rules when you were in the teams were there times where you would have wanted to like if you were like if i didn't have any if i didn't have any rules you know that i had to do because i'm working for the government in this situation, especially if you knew like getting certain information or whatever was going to literally be critical for America, mm-hmm. you know, uh, are some of those things were like in your mind, you're like, man, I would just love to do this. Well, it's more like you have to understand that, that as a leader that you have to maintain the moral high ground, yeah, both strategically sure. <laughs> and for your guys, for their long-term oh, yeah. well-being. Um, so incorporating different scenarios where you have to deal with those sorts of things in training. So the first time you get downrange, some 21 year old kid, brand new seal isn't, it's not the first time that he's thinking about, Oh, I think this guy is the IED maker who killed our friend type thing. And I'm in the room with him alone, like that sort of a thing. Like you don't want that to be the first time that this kid is ever thinking about that situation. Um, so articulating how important it is to maintain the moral high ground. Um, but, there are way there are other things that if you are still maintaining the moral high ground you wish you could do um, like go into a mosque that is obviously being used as a uh, uh, like a headquarters element or weapon storage or an ID facility or you know whatever it is yeah. like you know 100% but you can't go in there mm-hmm. like that sort of a thing right um, those sort of sensitivities uh, 2004, Najaf, we had the Jay Shalmati militia pushed in to the Imam Ali Mosque in Old Town, Najaf, and it's one of the one of the holiest sites in all of Islam. But uh, we'd fought for I think it was a two-week campaign, 11 days that that me and my sniper team were were involved in it. But it was day, night through the streets, as close to the World War II combat movies that I'd seen. Because usually we're going out at night, we're three in the morning, you're kicking in a door, grabbing somebody out of bed, taking them back for interrogation, like that sort of a thing. But this was all day, every day, 11 days straight urban warfare. And uh, we had them essentially, we take block by block every day, and they were holed up in the Imam Ali Mosque. So there's a lot of them in there. And, uh, you know, so a, uh, a younger me at the time was like, well, we've been fighting they're there. We've been calling an airstrikes for the last 11 days. Here we go. Another airstrike. Yeah. You'd be destroying one of the holiest sites in, in all of Islam. And uh, so we weren't allowed yeah. to do it. But at the time, after fighting all those days, like they're right here. And then what did eventually happen uh, is that there was a peace treaty-ish type thing done with the uh, interim Iraqi government where they came out, handed over their weapons to the Iraqi National Guard, and they got to fight another day. Yeah. After all that, so so there are things like that uh, that but I. But do you ever take those moments, like because I know those are those are those are somewhere in your memory bank, mm-hmm. and think, okay, I'm going to change the scenario, but oh yeah, 
if James was there, yeah. like as a rogue, what would happen? Yeah, I think he, I think if I go back to that particular scenario, I'd like to think that he'd be thoughtful about it, but figure out how to go round up that leadership coming out later. maybe off the books. Yeah, <laughs> off the books yeah, later. Like, okay, exactly. we can't do this for X, Y, and Z. Hey, get hey you make sure you get photos of everybody leaving there. Boom, and then work that into our target packages, and then go out and start just slaying a new list, starts. something like that. Yeah, something like that. So I think it I, still like, happened. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. You just, never know. I might have spurred yeah. something, but yeah, it could be, could be. I could, I, I, that might work its way into a future novel. Uh, but for me, it's mostly like the feelings and emotions behind those things that that make it in, and I think that's what resonates with people because that's something that uh, if you haven't lived it, um, it would be harder to I think create because it wouldn't resonate in my especially when people are in tune with the authenticity side of things. Right. So, so I think there is that. How about you guys? You, there are some things you look back on where you're like, man, I went left. I should have gone right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, and, but it, I'm still okay with the course. And I don't think it's mainly, I guess, there's probably more like people or relationships mm. where you kind of think like, I sh- there was a red flag early on. I yes. should have noticed. And it's, so for, for me, the, my value or what's valuable to me is, is time mm-hmm. and especially personal time with like friends. Yeah. And when I've gone into kind of deeper into a friend relationship with people that it wasn't a two-sided street mm-hmm. to where it's like, you know, it's a true friendship. Mm-hmm. I think though I probably have some relationships that more were more of a, I should have listened to my wife when yes. she said like, Hey, this guy, um, I just, there's nothing that he communicates with me when you're not in the room that's, that makes us feel like mm. you guys are a partnership. This is like, you're going to take more to that table than, you know, what's going to be given back type thing. And my wife has not been wrong on a lot of, you know, anytime I've ever been stubborn on like, no, you know, trust me, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so's friends with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause there's people that are very crafty at, getting to know a friend of yours just enough to where that like you both start hanging you both assume that you have a deeper relationship mm. with this person than and then eventually something happens to where you and a good friend get together and you're like dude I thought yeah. blah 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 and you're, he's like well the only reason I did that is because he told me blah blah you know right. so I think those are things that if I could go back and get my time back yeah from you know from like one-sided relationships yeah. or friendships, I would probably love to have that. Cause if nothing else, I would love to redock that as family time. Yeah. Like later in life, yeah. like if I could have it back because now, yeah. I, you know, time, time is the most valuable thing that I, that, you know, that I value right now. Oh yeah. I weave that into the, the novels as well. Both, uh, you know, well, it's definitely in there now. The last one. Yeah. The, of- in the forward, of mm-hmm. the last one, you, you like put the pieces together from the previous ones of mm-hmm. now all of a sudden I feel like there's a, there's a counter. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, there's something that's ticking yeah. 
in the background of what all is happening through the book series. So that yeah. became obvious this last one more so than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Time is something that uh, has always, I've always been fascinated by it. I've always been fascinated by watches. And I think that's because of the fascination with just time in general, knowing that once that second goes by, we're never getting that one back. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's just always been a part of me since I was a little kid. So it became very natural to weave that into the, the storyline as well. But uh, I think we should always, I think, if my wife tells me now, uh, something like, yes. Hey, I got a bad feeling from that guy. Like I should not even follow up with a question or a like, no, I think, nope. I should just be like, Roger that boom. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and let's, let's save that time. Let's save that breath. And she's going to be right about it. That intuition. It's uh, so there's been nice. a couple, there's been a couple times. Yeah. I think <laughs> if I looked back at things I should change, it's probably everything I told Sharon, it's going to be fine oh, because yeah. yeah if you have a really good wife that is literally your soulmate and your partner, their antennas are hypersensitive mm. to like protecting you too. Whereas mm. I think, I think you're like, I'm trying to not have a defense barrier around. I'm trying yeah. to be very, you know, open and, right. and, and, um, yeah. trying to think of the right word. I want people to be able to like come up to me. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to have that up. And yeah. I think when you have the approachable, right, yeah, I want to be approachable hundred percent and, it's kind of hard to be fully transparent and approach, approachable if you're also somewhat guarded on like mm -hmm. thinking like what's, what's the initiative. But yeah, if you have the right wife, that is, yes, that is, you've got the best Intel. Yeah. Like, yeah. If Intel is the like, sensors. If, mm -hmm. Yeah. If someone's, if she's radioing into my ear saying like, hey, <laughs> exactly. Throttle down right. with, with where you're going with this. Right. So yeah. I have a question. Where did like, did bow hunting start first for you or gun hunting? Uh, I, I hunted first with a rifle. Okay. Um, but I was in, but I shot a bow first. I have a great picture from, I think I'm five. Yeah, I'm five. Yeah. In this photo and, uh, shooting my, shooting a bow and it's awesome. It's old, you know, seventies. It's 1970. Yeah. So there's only one bow, I think from my youth that I am missing. And I'm so bummed about it. Cause I know exactly where we were when we did a little garage sale and so anyway, uh, that's the only one that I'm that I'm missing. It was the one my high school bow. I probably got eighth grade, maybe, but I had it all the way through high school. What was it? Still, and that's why because I don't remember exactly. I don't know if I'm now just thinking it was a bear, or if it actually was. Yeah. I, I I can't. But but I remember it was like mostly dark. But it but I remember the camouflage pattern on there. I remember exactly where Recurve. I got it. And uh, no, it was compound bow. Okay. Yep. And. Uh, and I wish I had it now to compare it to what we have today. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I have a few, I have my, I do have my first compound, which is, uh, uh, my mom dug it out of the attic not too long ago. So I do have that one and I don't want to even touch it. Cause I think it would just maybe, I, I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, I just don't know, but I, but at least I have it. It's an old faded yellow. Um, and, uh, I gotta, I gotta show it to you before you, before you go. So I have, I have that one and then I have all the other bows since, but, um, but my picture is with a, a recurve, you know, it's an old, just a little plastic. So did your dad hunt? Uh, no, he, he has hunted, but he, but I wouldn't say we were a hunting family. Uh, we had this, uh, we had his old 30, 30 that he got in the fifties out of a pawn shop at the, when he's 12 years old or something like that. I still have it today. Got a, got a mountain lion with it here in Utah a couple of years ago. Um, that's top of mind because I, I, 
didn't ding it up too much, but still it was, uh, it's, you know, freezing out there and we have snow machines and there's dogs and you're getting out of trucks and, you know, going over these mountains and all that stuff. And I just kept thinking, I just wanted to protect this rifle yeah. the whole time because yeah. of its history. So just yesterday I got two others just arrived, uh, of pre 64, 30 thirties, same type, but I had a guy, Nelson Ford in uh, Arizona. He looked him over and, uh, tuned him up a little bit and, and just sent him out here. So I just picked him up yesterday, which is why that's top of mind. But so we always had, had guns around, had that 30, 30, had an old, um, old 22, um, from the 1920s, had, um, the little Colt Woodsman also 22. Oh, so yeah. we shot, mm-hmm. but, uh, but we didn't uh, hunt as a family, but I was always in my backyard. I was on the roof. I was shooting down into hay bales. Cause back then that first, the recurve and then the, the compound, but wouldn't even go through hay bales back then because it was just it was so yeah you know it was didn't have that kind of kind of power today would just sail sail right through but uh there were no targets when i was a kid it was a bale of hay hay. you would literally buy a a bale of straw yep at like the co-op yep and then put a paper plate on it that's probably you didn't you didn't even have the the old school multicolor. i mean if i was lucky but honestly it was like yeah. a paper plate or yeah. like an empty can. Like that's yeah. what you shot. That's what I shot at. Yeah. So who was the, the hunting mentor part of your life then? Yeah, that was just innate. I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember thinking I should be, I, should, I need to be hunting. Like why, I wish we could be a, I wish we were a hunting family. Um, like that sort of a thing it was just in my DNA. What'd you watch? Like, do you that, think you watch anything? Do you think it, I think it was anything movies. primal, like I set think, it off. I think I was just had that, that, uh, that protector, that hunter, that service gene yeah. or whatever in my DNA. Like I, it hadn't mm-hmm. been diluted and I didn't let it get diluted along the way. I just uh, embraced it. And so I think it's always just been a part of me. And I think I was not, I naturally gravitated towards stories, uh, whether it was in field and stream or uh, back in the day, like a boy's life, even if it was just an advertisement in the back for like a rifle or a BB gun or whatever it was in the back. Um, Soldier of Fortune magazine, of course, for back in the day, um, movies that had this just primal element to it. Uh, so I, I just naturally gravitated to that stuff. I didn't get, I didn't watch Bambi and I didn't get, uh, I know I didn't think of it like that. I thought of it as, as, Hey, hunting has been a part of our, even back when I was a little kid, hunting has been a part of the human experience since the beginning of time. Uh, I should be good at this. This is what it means to provide. So it was just a part of me. So I didn't have really a hunting mentor other than just like, just like, let's say for the military, I didn't know anybody in the military. Uh, but guess what? I watched uh, first blood and I watched Rambo first blood part two and I watched predator and I watched all these world war two movies and I watched black sheep squadron with Robert Conrad flying a Corsair, which is the same plane. My grandfather flew in world war two and he was killed uh, near the end of the war. But uh, so he never, never made it back, but I had his pictures of him and his squad. So I had these touch points, but that's why I think today it's so important who these kids follow. Cause if there was a, who I followed back in the eighties, that would be Stallone. It would be Schwarzenegger, you know, it'd be, you know, those types of people yeah. in popular culture. And, uh, so I think it's so important. And they, they had, did have a big influence on me. Rocky was a huge influence yeah. on me. I, I don't know how many times I watched Rocky growing up. Um, but what, what a great role model for yeah. a kid. Yeah. And today, man, who you're following and who you're scrolling past, who my kids are scrolling past. And, and we try to limit that stuff or try to keep them off TikTok and all that stuff. And our little guy who you just met, yeah. he's smart. Hey, he's smart. He gets around it. He figures it out, which I kind of like. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, dang it. You know, God, know. these kids are outsmarting us on this, on this stuff. So, 
Anyway, that was a very long way of saying that uh, I didn't really have a hunting mentor. But then when I got to SEAL Team 5 and became a sniper, they had just started up a sniper sustainment program. So once you made it through the school, got back to your platoon as a sniper, they wanted to keep those skills kind of up rather than do things other than just go to a range and just confirm your dope or whatever. Right. Um, and so they started taking us on hunting trips. So that was 2000. So okay. that was my first. I'd done a little bit before that, but I consider my first real hunt up in Washington State. And uh, it was, I won't say the name of the place because I don't know if they really advertise it or not, but got to go up there and we set up all these different scenarios where you have essentially a 360 degree type of range where you're going in and uh, shooting and hitting a, hitting a target, whatever. But also you, they took us hunting. Yeah. And it was amazing. And uh, I had this deer up there and you're cutting off strips of this deer and it's after, you're, after you're hanging it in the tree and, and all that stuff and throwing it on the grill. And it was just awesome. Yeah. Brought that back, shared it with my wife and our little place in Coronado. And, and, uh, and then I was, so that's, that I think was the beginning of actually doing it for real, not just like wanting right. to do it. And then um, September 11th kicked off not long after that, but the sniper sustainment continued even though it was a little bit less because it was just go down range go down range go down range um and uh so i kept kept hunting really with the teams and then there were some organizations that would come in and say hey we heard you guys want to you know your snipers need to hunt let's go out to santa catalina island yeah that was awesome were you always five uh five two seven oh okay okay so you were east coast for a little bit okay Mm -hmm. um historically i guess every the stories i hear is it true that East Coast has better like weapons vaults for like you to pick and shoot, pick and choose? Because I don't know because like, everything's pretty much in the system. Because I think Andy said once he went dev grew, it was oh, literally yeah. like shopping, have, shopping yeah. cart. Like yeah, they'll have like, different going things. through the armory. <laughs> like like I, well, so if you had access to that, which mm. you did. You know, you've had access. We didn't have to access cool, to theirs, but I've had access to some cool stuff. Well, and, definitely, definitely. And our snipers had we had a we had a cool little. Like, let's say five, six different weapon systems that, that you uh, had access to, which is pretty cool. So during that time, awesome mm-hmm. assortment. You had a, you know, you had an arrangement. You had a salad mm-hmm. bar of cool stuff you yeah. could play with every day with your job. Were there times where you're like, I want to go shoot a bow? Oh, yeah. Even though you had that? Oh, yeah. See, I love that. About, 100%. I feel like your archery is is kind of a gene in mm-hmm. you as well, even though, you, you know, it's not yeah. like that was necessarily handed down directly. It w- really wasn't. My uncle liked it, so it did, mine didn't come from my dad or my grandfather. The hunting side came from um, my grandfather, but then the archery side came from my uncle. So nice. sometimes it's, it's you think that the dad would always be the one passing that down. Uh-huh. It's pretty common that it actually comes from outside of that direction, yeah, mentor. which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's the word you used earlier was a, a mentor, mm-hmm. uh, which is different than mentor is not the father, the mentor is somebody different. You go back and look at the, at the, you know, the background to that, that word. But, uh, but, and, and it did come before, even growing up, I remember the, watching Robin Hood and I remember they had these little books that would go along with, uh, with Robin Hood. They were like kids books, but it was pictures from like the Errol Flynn movie yeah. were in there. And so I always, I loved that. Uh, my, when I graduated buds, I told myself if I graduate buds, uh, my present to myself will be a bow. And so I went up to performance what? archery. Yeah, I still have it. It's in the, I think it's over there. Yeah, it's right behind the, the desk over there. I'll show it to you. But and that's a, it's a bear. And uh, yeah, so my, when I graduated Buds, I went right up to performance archery, Bob Frome, and tried out a few few different ones. And that one just felt felt right to me. So that's the one I, one I went with. So my, that my is awesome. present to myself when I got it. And it was a lot back then. Like, I mean, it was probably just over a thousand bucks for everything, which is not 
that much now uh, when you look, when you try everything high end today. At the time, that was At the time, especially if you're not, if you're making like 300 bucks every couple of weeks, you know, yeah. back then, um, it was, it was a lot, but that was my, that was my present to myself was a, was a bow. So didn't you go to Balboa? Uh, to shoot? Yeah. Is that, no. is that where you were? Yeah. Yeah. So got it to bow with, with Bob from performance archery and then uh, go to uh, that, uh, that course that they had, which is really cool. When was that? Like what was 97? Yeah. How, and then once, once you were deployed, did you shoot, did you practice very much at Balboa? I, uh, I, it's very much when I could. Okay. So I go up there with my, my, uh, my wife and with our daughter, when she started, she, she got a bow as soon as she could, uh, I should pull one back and one of the performance archery had, had Bob hook her up with one. And when she was little, when she was six, maybe, and, uh, we'd walk around the course at Balboa and it was just a cool spot. Cause you don't expect there to be a archery course there. And you're know. like, wait, what? Right here, Were San you there Diego, early two thousands. Yep. So, I used to go out there because I was friends with Frank Zane, um, who was an old. He's three time Mister Olympian. He oh was yeah, like one okay. Of our, one I was thinking, Arnold's yeah, or, yeah. Okay, so Frank lived in San Diego, and we used to exchange like fitness for archery because he and Arnold used to shoot archery too. Like back at back at Santa Monica High School, I've got oh, pictures wow. of them shooting. Nice. And so I would go, and whenever I worked with Frank, I would shoot at Balboa. And I'd talk to a lot of you guys that are like, when we practiced, we were at Balboa. I, I wish I had pictures of, like, when I was out there shooting and training because I wonder if we were ever, like, next to each other but never knew it. <laughs> maybe. Maybe on the that course at the same time. That could be pretty cool, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, if we Very ever cool. go back and find a picture where we're, like, practicing at Santa Monica and then, yep. you know, here's you in the background with, like, your That's crazy. Boat. Like, that would be awesome. That'd that would be crazy. I think because a lot – because that part, I was um, – I did it alone because I didn't know anybody else that, that shot, um, back in the early, when I went in 97, when I got that bow after, after buds. So that was really just me. And then we got married and I'd go there and, you know, my wife would walk around with me and I'd, I'd shoot a little bit. And then after we had kids and came back to the West coast and our daughter was at an age where she could shoot. And so we were out there then. I think some of those photos are like, cause I don't think everything was in the cloud then. I think, no, that, like, I, don't think I think so. it was before. So it was like, I still had an iPhone 2009, 10, but I don't think they were on the cloud. So there's a, there's like a few year period mm-hmm. where I can, I can't scroll back and yeah. find them uh, yeah. because they were on like a hard drive. You had to like plug your phone in and they would go there. So I think pre there's a lot four, of, pre that, four or five, I think something like that. And so anyway, it's uh so there's, there are some keep, photos. I had to keep all the old phones so that, cause they're like on there and they're probably like four <sighs> megabytes. physically on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. So I think we, so we do have a couple, I do, I know I have a couple of pictures, especially of my daughter down there from like 2000, let's say nine, 10, 11, 12 oh, that'd be awesome. time frame. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, so I shot there and then I brought my bow, that bow that's over there in the corner on my first two deployments. But since one was before September 11th, so I took it to Guam, and uh, I think I shot it a couple times. Uh, no, sorry, where's the first point? Okinawa. So I shot it a couple times on Okinawa uh, when we when we were actually there, because when you're before September 11th, you'd go to a place and then you'd kind of leave out of there to go do training exercises in yeah. your area there. And uh, so I brought it on the first deployment. I brought it on the second deployment, but and that was in Guam, and then. Two weeks into that was September 11th. So we packed up and off we went. So a lot of my stuff stayed in my room. Um, so the, the bow stayed in my room because we had to, we didn't know what was going on. September yeah. 11th happens. You're still kind of, where are we going? We're going to Afghanistan. We're going, where are we going? And uh, we packed up and went. So I think, I'm pretty sure I left it in my room because I don't have memories of being in Kuwait or anywhere else shooting. Any. So, so I'm pretty sure I left it 
in the room. But uh, but yeah, so I, my intent was to always bring them on deployments. Yeah. But then it, and I think, I wonder if I brought one to Iraq. I should have, but I don't know if I did or not. I might have, but I, I think we were too busy to actually shoot. I think I got a hard case for it for an Iraq deployment, took it. And I don't think it came out of the case because I don't have any memory of actually shooting it because we were just go, go, go. And for me as a leader, I never like took time to do anything else other like if there was free time that I'm studying yeah. the enemy or I'm looking at target packages or I'm, I'm, I'm always doing. Um, so I never took time, although it might have been nice looking back to shoot. And it'd be cool to have a picture shooting in Iraq. Oh, yeah. Dang it. But I wasn't thinking about that stuff back then. I was only thinking about the mission. Uh, yeah. But that's just how it, that's how it goes. Navy Federal Credit Union. I've been a member of Navy Federal Credit Union since 1996 and have only had incredible experiences. Getting a new car is exciting and you deserve a hassle-free buying experience. You can get a decision in seconds and enjoy great rates. With everything you need in one place, Navy Federal's Car Buying Center is your one-stop shop for researching, financing, buying, protecting, and enjoying your next car. You could search for new and used cars, access vehicle history reports, enjoy discounts on auto insurance, and more. And you can make the most of your time on the road wherever you go with our flagship credit card. Whether you're taking a trip to relax or see somewhere new, you deserve a travel card that does the work for you. The flagship credit card will earn you three times points on travel, plus up to $100 in statement credits towards TSA PreCheck or Global Entry and a free year of Amazon Prime. With two times the points and all purchases outside of travel, the rewards don't have to end when your vacation does. For more on Navy Federal's car buying experience and flagship rewards, visit NavyFederal.org. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Visa is a registered service. Mark of Visa. Used by Navy Federal under license. NavyFederalCreditUnion.org. Does it seem surreal that, like, right now for archery or bow hunting, because I feel like you were probably the originator. Like, out of the SEALs I know, I feel like by what you're telling me, you were one of the OGs to actually be involved with archery. So now is it kind of surreal to you that Jocko, Stump, <laughs> yeah. Leif, Biss, yeah. uh, you know, JP Donnell, yeah. Garner. Yeah. Um, I it's mean, cool to see. Everybody's like yeah. all in as a bow hunter, yeah. like all in as a bow hunter. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is. It is. And it's, uh, of course in my mind, I'm like, man, I don't remember them having a bow back in 97. <laughs> no, it's quite, I love it. I love it. It's really cool. I think it's so therapeutic for guys, which is another reason I weave it into the novels um, for people that are reading it. And I put in a couple sentences about it being therapeutic, about it being meditative yeah. um, and it being helpful uh, to people that are, that are dealing with, with certain things from the, from the battlefield. Um, because I want more people to come to it. I want more people to come to, to archery and, and all those benefits. I remember in college, in, uh, in high school reading Zen and the Art of Archery, I think it was freshman maybe, it might've been eighth grade, but I know I read it in high school again, at least, but I have my original Zen and the Art of Archery. Um, I have a couple books about, uh, some other, anything I could find on, uh, like a Japanese bowmanship or, you know, right. all that stuff, um, from back in the day, uh, pictures of like samurai shooting bows and, and that sort of a thing or like recreations, you know, whatever. Some, maybe some black and white photos, but they're all stacked. I have these, these books from, from high school days of, of that. So I was always into it, but you couldn't just Google it. 
back then. You had to go to the library. You had oh, to go to yeah. a bookstore. You had to find a, uh, in the back of a magazine an advertisement for some obscure book and then send away for it and then get it. And so I have most of those those books still still today. It, it's weird. I look back at when I was a kid and like trying to consume products or whatever. Mm-hmm. Back when you used to have to like fill out an order form. Oh, you had to put in the a, work from a magazine. Oh, yeah. You have to like cut it out, yep. fill it out, mail in a check. Yep. To then get something. A back. catalog. Uh, yeah. Just to get the catalog. Yeah. That mm-hmm. that seems so strange, but it was also so fun. Yeah, I love because it. Because you would open the mailbox every day. Like now, I don't even want to open a mailbox. Yeah. I'm like junk, junk, junk. Oh yeah. Back then, you were like, "What's in there?" Exactly. Close it up. Felt like Ralphie, you know, oh, from like Christmas Story. Fantastic. Like- <laughs> I love doing that, but it's also cool because it meant you had to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Nothing was just coming to you. You weren't just going to scroll, and some algorithm was going to push something to you because it thinks you might click on it or you're going to like it. Um, it wasn't any of that. You had to actually go and do, we watched last night for whatever reason, we watched war games, oh, uh, with, yeah. with Matthew Broderick. Yep. Um, and, uh, so we watched it with the kids last night and he has to go do this research for this guy, uh, uh Falcon, who's the, who created this kind of artificial intelligence computer thing that the government's now using. And now he's, he's kind of left. He's on this Island in Oregon and Matthew Broderick has to go to the library and he's pulling out the, the, the card catalog thing and he's going through it. And our kids are like, what? What and, is that? Yeah. And he's going to the microfiche thing and he's looking up articles and on some, I was like, look kids, you had to put in the work back yeah. then. You couldn't just, didn't have to walk five feet and sit down at your computer or pull, pull your phone you out of your to pocket. Find microfiche. You had to and go. You had to go mm-hmm. find a microfiche monitor and like scroll around and like okay. Yep. You had to do the work. You had to put in the Can work. I get a so I like that. Of this, please? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you ha- I, and I like that. I like that you had to put in the work back then. Um, and today it's kind of comes a little little easier. Uh, there's the that access um, to, to information is just uh, it's different. It's different. It made you more street smart. I feel like you could figure things out if there was a problem in front of you i think you were a better problem solver Mm -hmm. whereas now the way everything is in society i think kids are smarter because they have instant education in any field but i don't think kids would like i think kids could pull over and google how to change a tire but i think when i was a kid if i like ran over a nail on the on the ramp that I was building in the backyard with like a two by eight and mm-hmm. a can and like yeah. a paint can I'm trying to build a ramp and I pop my tire I was more afraid to tell my dad I popped this new tire uh, so I would then be like I've got to patch this tire and you would yeah. like take your tire off your bike yeah. and like pull the thing out and like, yeah you couldn't google it you really couldn't you had like all those little things mm-hmm. you just figured out as a kid and a lot of it was like I broke this. I don't want to like tell my parents how do I how do yeah. I solve the problem. I f- I feel like at some point as a society, those people honestly, it's like the farmers, mm-hmm. like hardcore farmers, are still super hard workers, yeah. but they also, you know, can look at something that's broke and figure out a way to like, oh well, that tire's flat, but we can just like do this to get by, like right. you know the. The make a quick adjustment and like jerry rig something to like make it work and and let's like yeah deal with this after we were doing this specific task yeah. those days i think unfortunately will go away because some yeah. of these ranchers some of these ranchers some of these guides some of these outdoorsmen mm-hmm. that salt like once they're gone yeah i don't see a new there's so few people in line to take over really? that. I think it's going to be a, a gap in our society. For like, I hadn't thought about 
that with guides in particular, uh, or maybe there's just fewer, fewer of them. Cause once you get back there, let's say, let's say you're uh, a Cole Kramer up in, in Kodiak and you're out there in the back country. 100%. Um, well, you gotta, you have to figure some things out mm-hmm. back there. Um, so maybe there, so maybe there's just fewer of them. We'll look at Cole. Like you, you and I both say Cole, mm-hmm. but 40 years ago, there was probably 20 Coles mm. that did that kind of stuff. Now, like, honestly, other than Cole, like, I don't know anyone that's like a true Grizzly Adams type mm. of a guide that lives that way all the time. It's just, it's becoming less and less and less and less. Yeah. I mean, Cole probably has his mentors where he's just like, yeah, once these guys are gone, they're gone. Yeah. And I mean, and Cole will fall, fall in that same category too. You know, yeah. hopefully, hopefully people start to pick that up. Yeah. It would be valuable. Oh man. But thinking back to that, uh, sending away, uh, man, us Calvary was a catalog. I look forward to getting all the time, but I think I had to send away for that one us Calvary. And there was another one that kind of very similar, but it would have knives and you know camo and like all this. I, I, I love getting, getting things like that. That was so much fun. But yeah, now you just, there's, all that's gone. There's no join going to the mailbox anymore. I'm like, Oh geez, I gotta empty this, uh, this box here and bring it home and drop it on the counter. I used to have to like sneak to order fireworks. Like if you had that, I forgot it wasn't like phantom fireworks, but like I wanted fireworks. So you'd send away and get fireworks or I wanted like, I remember those ads. I never did. I wanted like Chinese (coughs) stars. Yes. I still have some. And so I would order Chinese stars and, What's hilarious is you've got like your hatchet board back here. Mm-hmm. I a hundred percent had like a piece of plywood where I like yep. threw ninja. I stars. did too. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I did too. But I had to order them through like a mail-in thing, and I was kind of like, hopefully they come when my mom's not home. You know, I don't want don't right. want to know I have these weapons or oh, whatever. That's awesome. Yeah, the uh, I shot that same board because this is it's softwood out there, so I can replace it. So it's hardwood. Or if you saw it, there's there's uh, it's hardwood, and then there's softwood in the front, so I can just take those off and replace them fairly fairly easily. But I didn't know any of that back then. And back when I was 10 or 11 and that same piece of plywood that you're throwing the stars at, I shot a bow, my bow into it once. And even with the low power stuff back then, I was not getting that thing out. That yeah. thing, I think I unscrewed it eventually yeah. maybe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was not, I thought I'd just like go up and pull it out. I distinctly remember going up to it and uh, it was in there. You know, whatever, because it went through, because it was just up against the shed yeah. at our house. And oh, so yeah. it was like, tink to, into the shed, whatever, even the wood on the side of the shed, through the shingles, into whatever else. And I was like, ugh. So even at that age, Unscrew that, uh, it, yeah. plug the hole, don't let this, don't let anyone know this happened. Yeah, I was pretty obvious what was that, yeah, because eventually I got a paintball gun, and uh, so I was sighting the paintball gun in on that same piece of plywood up against the, the shed. Um, so that was, that was pretty fun to, to do that kind of early early on in, uh, in high school days. But, um, what, what was your first hunt? I wanted to ask you what your first hunt was and how old were you? Uh, my very first hunt was, um, in my grandfather's lap. He took me turkey hunting. Wow. He like took me out. I remember he like, you know, we like left the farmhouse, went down. Um, actually the Natchez trace runs right down the back end of my grandfather's property, which is on St. Catherine Creek in Mississippi in Natchez, Mississippi. And, uh, he took me down there on like this foggy morning and I was like sitting between his lap. I think I was maybe seven or eight and he was, you know, had a, a box call, like an old, you know, box mm-hmm. call. And he sat there and was striking on this thing. And, nice. and I, and I hear like a gobble and he's telling me to be quiet. And next thing I know, like out of the, you know, the fog and the mist, like here comes this like fan and I'm like literally sitting in his kind of his lap and he's telling me you know, look down the barrel and tell me, tell me when that bead is on that red head. 
And then, you know, and I was, obviously he was probably just like teaching your kid to drive where you're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, you're doing it. But you're like, you mm -hmm. got your hand underneath yeah, where yeah. they can't see. And then I just saw like, yeah, his head's right there. Boom. You know? And, and, you know, then I like see this Turkey and like the fan and the beard and this whole experience. And then, um, and then I think the next year I went out deer hunting with, uh, like an, an old Mossberg mm -hmm. with buckshot. Like I remember, okay shooting buckshot and my first whitetail was down in mississippi when i think i was eight oh, wow. and then i was bow hunting by nine no you know, okay. not yet bow hunting by nine and i think i had shot my first deer with a bow at like 10 no way. what was your first bow or what did you shoot that uh, that deer with it was a red fiberglass dude just something like yeah off the shelf like a up. like a long bow some type of a recurve thing no that, that i don't even know where i got it and then my dad started taking me to art like local archery mm -hmm. um clubs and stuff in northern north northwest chicago suburbs because really? we had moved to illinois by that time okay. and uh so i went to all these midwest like little archery clubs and my dad would take me to shoot but he wouldn't really nurture me on the hunting side yeah. the, my hunting side was all fed from going down to Mississippi for Thanksgiving and for Easter every year, we'd drive down and my mom would see her side of the family for, th we'd always have big Thanksgivings. Okay. And I'd remember like eating, cleaning my plate and being like, can I go? Cause they, you know, if after Thanksgiving meal, mid, you know, mid afternoon, if you totally cleaned your plate, you could go hunting. And I would just run out the back door and I knew like where I could go to my stand. And what's nice. weird is I would just grab a gun and go climbing a it's not, I had no safety belt you'd go climb in this tree as a kid like uh -huh. i would never let my kid do that <laughs> now right uh -huh. and but i just feel like we had no rules it was just yeah. like go go out and you know whether it was like gigging frogs or you know squirrel hunting or whatever like there was no old school yeah there was no like I don't know. No one watched you. You just, yeah, yeah. they just knew where you were and you were doing it. And uh -huh. then if they heard a gunshot from the house, they would assume that I got something uh -huh. or I would walk all the way back from okay. those, wherever those hunting spots yeah. were and be like, I got one, come help me. You nice. Know? So that's kind of how it started. You know, my DNA is Mississippi deer and turkeys. Okay. That's, you know, and we ate, we ate from what we shot. Yeah. So it was a very different mentality. Yeah. Oh man, that's all right before you got here right outside the door there was a we have like it's like 200 turkeys and they for this winter last winter they were here the whole time and they go between like this one ridge up here and they come down to this ridge on the other side and then they go back that's kind of their their pattern every day um and that's how they did it all not last winter but the winter before and then this one they disappeared because it was such a bad winter and we had so much snow up here and i thought man they gotta be they might be done. Like, I don't know. What do they do? I mean, it was crazy how much snow we had. And, I and if it was the largest snowfall that Utah has had in recorded Utah history, then it's the first snow that they're seeing. They're yeah. experiencing like this. So I didn't know because they're experiencing it for the first time like that as our Turkeys are have we. a pretty short lifespan. So, yeah, this is totally new. Ooh, yeah. And so I think, but then they came back. And I'm like, they must have found a barn somewhere down a little bit lower, yeah. a few thousand feet below us. And I'm thinking. So I don't know what they would do. What do they would, would have? How do they I would think survive? of a turkey's foot holding on those branches every night. Yeah, and I'm like, does their feet have no feelings? Seriously, 
yeah, they go up in these trees right behind us here. When the coyotes come out, you can they, you can hear them fly up there. And and uh, but I, I thought that I thought the winter was going to get them, kind of like the mule deer. Yeah. Um. And uh, but they're they're back, they're back. I think about the same numbers. That's awesome. Yeah. Same with the elk. I think the elk must have found somebody a little. They lower. definitely they could have went a hundred miles away yeah. and wintered for, but they'll slowly start to trickle back to their natural like breeding areas yeah. here pretty soon. Okay. I think. I think if your numbers were down. Well, this happened. Um, this happened on a ranch we both know. Their antelope population mm. really changed for like a two-year window. Okay, because the winter got so hard, they migrated across the Utah side into the Wyoming side, okay. and they just kind of n- never filtered back fast. Yeah. But now, over three years, they've filtered back. Okay, but it's not you know they they went where they could thrive. Yeah, and then they're slowly trying to get back to I think their natural you know, instinct of okay. like where home is. But yeah, sometimes I don't think that just happens because of the season change. I yeah. think it's, I think it's a migration that sometimes is fast out of necessity to, to live. Yeah. And sometimes it's slow because they were pushed out and yeah. now they're like working their way back. Yeah. I'm thinking that just the elk being more robust because it's visually seeing the elk now back i think there are they're fewer but they're still real i mean there's a lot of them here yeah um but mule deer totally noticeable there are less mule deer here this year than there were last year at this time yeah no big, no doubt about it off. um so even if they went somewhere i think even where they went must not have been the greatest spot for them uh, that's what i'm thinking anyway well, i've heard the vehicle collision on mule deer was like the highest ever along because people they were just getting smoked because oh. they were trying to get down in the valleys okay what what do you think the importance of archery is to the veteran community? Because I know you like you're throwing nuggets to people in the book series, mm-hmm. which I I really appreciate because a big focus of ours as a brand is you know our relationship with Black Rifle, you know Kill Cliff, yeah. the veteran, the whole veteran side of the community. Jocko obviously helps us tremendously and stuff, and I feel like that message is getting out. I think mm-hmm. it got out there really strong during COVID because mm-hmm. people were stuck at home yeah. and that message really got out there. And what I don't want her is that to like the accelerator be let off that focus, mm-hmm. because I think it's so critical for the veteran community to like be able to find something to yeah. where they've got the mission, they've got a loadout mm-hmm. They're you know, they're trying something hard. Yeah. You know, most yeah. of you guys are competitive to where like archery isn't since you're under load, you know, Andy described it to me one time. I said, what do you think the real difference is between archery and, you know, when you were a sniper and stuff? And he, cause you know, he's just like, well, the difference is archery, you're under load. So even if your technique's awesome, you're like, you know, it's not like you're shooting a rifle where you have to hold back this hammer, mm-hmm. you know, and you're having to hold that and then go through your techniques of making this, one mile shot or whatever Mm -hmm. you're literally trying to like disperse yourself like you know melted you know a melted person where every all your weights distributed right and you're Mm not and you're able to just make these clean shots whereas with archery you've got you've got to like hold the load and Mm -hmm. make all that stuff happen at the same time so i think the challenge naturally draws so many of you to it yeah but do you think the therapeutic part do you think we should do a more of a job as a community to like make sure that that is staying relevant, making sure that veterans know the importance of what archery can do. 
Yeah, you know, I think a couple of years ago, you're right, when Black Rifle was all in on Total Archery Challenge and uh, doing the veteran shoots. And I don't, did they do one, not do one this year? I forget. Right, um, yeah, the adaptive yeah, thing Yeah, I think happen. that was big just yeah. because uh, you're seeing people missing legs, missing both legs yep. that are out there on and a more. beautiful yeah. course. Yeah, on these beautiful courses uh, and, and hold, holding back these bows. Some guys with their teeth because they, they yeah. don't have the arm. Uh, and around other people that are having a, everybody's having a great time there's this community and when they're on when you're on that bow there are very few things in life where you're in the moment and like on the edge of a, of a plane where you're about to ramp when you're about to jump like that's one uh, at least for me it was uh, i'm not thinking about anything else you're not like did i leave the iron on you know you're yeah. you're on that and you're going and you're thinking for me anyway if this shoot doesn't open when it comes time to pull i have to go through procedures to <laughs> then either cut away or untangle or whatever what are those procedures and as we're going up you know i'm thinking about those things um because for me it wasn't just like second nature for randy it might be maybe yeah. he doesn't think about that because he's done it so much but for me i was always going through those procedures in my head um and then you get to that ramp you're not anywhere else like you're right there. And I found that same feeling at the top of a rapid in a kayak. Um, same thing. Like you're right before you're about to drop in. Like you're not anywhere else. You're yeah. right there. And there's nothing else distracting you because there's no phone. There's no computer. There's nobody else. It's just you, top of a rapid, and you're about to go in. Maybe you scattered it ahead of time. And so you're maybe thinking about that stuff. But as you go in, you're there. Yeah. That's where you are. Same thing with archery. When you're back, you're, you're right there. You're not thinking about anything else uh, for whatever reason. I think it's just very natural to not think about anything else when you're here, when you're doing doing this. And you're just, yeah, you're maybe thinking through your, your steps or your points of performance at the beginning. But once you've done it so much, you're there. And they're not thinking about anything else except that shot, which is pretty pretty cool. So I think for, for veterans, and for anybody, but uh, for veterans, because we're talking about, about them, um, that that's a... That's, that's a uh, a very special thing to be associated with and, uh, uh, of an outlet or a thing that you can do to not be thinking about anything else to be right there. And just because it's so meditative it, and so it, it's, it's calming, Yep, which is really, really cool, really special. There's very few things out there, maybe yoga, if you got into yoga or something, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but archery for me is, I'm not, I'm not anywhere else. And I don't have to get in a plane to go feel it. I don't have to like take yeah. the kayak out or the raft out to, to some river to get, I can go in the, the backyard and you can also do that pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Um, not anywhere, but there's a lot of places where you can go and you can shoot archery much, a lot more than where you can go and shoot a rifle. Um, boom, you're right there. You're in that shot. And so I think that's a, for veterans in particular, but for anybody really, it's so beneficial. Jocko said the biggest thing for him was the quietness. Like with the, when he shot archery the very first time, I said, I remember we were there. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, so what, like, how do you describe it? And he's just like, it's just, it's like quiet. He's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like, he's like, I'm used to me shooting and doing all that stuff, but this is, this is a quiet, this yeah. is a quiet type of, you know, training type thing. Yeah, it's peaceful. I mean, it is. I mean, yeah. You're right there. You're right. I love it. Absolutely. I've always loved it my whole life. I've always, uh, just obviously gra gravitated to it, but I've always had that same, that same feeling. Maybe not at five years old. Maybe you're just like, I don't know. But my memory of it is always being very calm and being nowhere else but in that shot. Yeah. yeah. See, the hunting side of this is what lets me enjoy that, like that feeling because so much of my life, I would say, you know, three more than three quarters of every single day is yeah. teaching archery and trying Amazing. to give free content and trying to like give 
our community one little tip that can help them, you know, mm-hmm. give them one thing to work on this week or one tip or, hey, here's a student I had in this. I'm so focused on, like, trying to help everybody else out through our platform that sometimes when you're doing it all the time, what you really loved about it, you don't really get to enjoy for yourself anymore because you're putting mm-hmm. you're putting everything yeah. you have into making it enjoyable for everybody else. Yeah. So, so there's there's that nucleus of, like, what really made me want to do it when I was a kid. On the competitive side of archery i feel i don't really feel i feel like it's work for me because i'm like really working to try to help everybody else out yeah now when i go hunting that brings me back to the roots Uh of what i really loved about when that string lets go and you are a hundred percent like all of your senses are in tune and you can literally see that arrow in like slow motion and everything that mattered in that hunting moment, it just, it like brings me back to this is why you like, as soon as you're in that hunting moment, it's like, this is why my whole life is based off this. Right. It's always been for the hunting side. And then honestly, the education side, like I feel, I love seeing someone get better. I love, like, I love teaching veterans because the amount of them that look at me and they're like, you don't know how bad I needed this. It's, it's almost every time it's every time to where once they do it, they're like, this is cool. This, this is going to be part of my, my like routine, something because we all have hobbies, but there's a lot of hobbies that you pick up to where you might put it back down and you just never do it again. You're like, I tried it. It was cool with archery. People freaking love it. And the amount of people where they're like, I did this in high school and, or I did this at Boy Scouts or I did this yeah. at 4-H when I was in junior high and uh-huh. I had ne- I've never done it again, but I loved it when I did right. it back then. It seems like that's such a common thing with archery. Yeah. And you've done so much for, I can, I mean, there's nobody else that's done as much for archery uh, as you have over the past uh, decade. When did you know archery was going to be, you know, your, I mean, not just a passion, but your, your life, your profession. Um, when did, when did that click? You know when it cl- you know when it clicked that it was definitely going to be engulfing the majority of my life mm. is when I went to the first ever tournament. It was a it was a competition, and I didn't know that it was going to be one. I actually had uh, had kind of hurt my knee. I was football. You know, yeah, I was. I had kind of sprained it, so I didn't go to this early spring training because you were or, big into football. Yeah, I was going to go play college football, and so this was in the summer right prior to me starting the college football and I decided to not go to the early like camp because I'm like, you know, I'm still feeling this thing. So I was staying close to home and I had a Mazda B2, B2000 SE5 single cab truck. And, you know, I had a flip forward seat and my bow could, my bow in the case. And at that time it was more or less like a sock that had a big zipper on okay. it. Like those old yeah, first yeah. cases uh-huh. that was always behind my seat because nice. I always like, I just like to think that I was a deer hunter, even though I only went five days, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd go during that Thanksgiving week at Mississippi, then I'd get to Turkey hunt during the springtime. So I'm like, 
I actually went up to Wilmot Mountain, which is where I worked. I did dishes and stuff. What's to, Wilmot Mountain? It was a little ski hill in, okay. in like northern Illinois, su- southern Wisconsin. Okay. And I worked in the in the kitchen doing burgers so that I could have a free ski pass because I loved skiing. Nice. So I'd gone up to Wilmot to, to ask them, hey, can I have a job when I fly back for just like my college like when, like if I only come home for three weeks for college, yeah. can I still, I was trying to like negotiate. Can I get this free ski pass yeah. if I'm only working <coughs> three weeks out of the entire yeah, winter yeah. type time? What'd they say? I, don't, I think they said we'll make it work. Oh, cool. I, honestly, I always, I like always worked hard. You know, I mm-hmm. always, I didn't like other people around me. Like if we were washing dishes, I would like try to wash more than the guy next to me Yeah, yeah. type thing. So for whatever reason, when I was going home, there was a construction on the main highway and it was only a two lane, like country highway road type thing from Wilmot to Johnsburg, Illinois, where I lived. So I took this detour and went through this small little town called Ringwood. And on this side street, there was like a plywood sign that just said archery shoot and had an arrow pointing down the driveway. So I'm like, what the heck is that? I turned in and I went to this the shoot and it was a 3d shoot now i didn't know there were like 3d targets they had just came out yeah and there was like you know 10 ring eight ring five okay so i went out there you know didn't have like binoculars none of that i just had like hand me down stuff yeah and and i i paid like 20 bucks to like shoot this course and it it like was brand new to me i had no idea this existed yeah. well halfway through that course i had lost every arrow and it's probably like people who come here and think I shoot archery. I'm going to go shoot attack. And Uh, then all of a sudden you're coming down the mountain. You're like, you know, I'm leaving this thing halfway through because I have no arrows. Exactly. So I literally left Ringwood, Wisconsin, turned out of that driveway, drove North up to Wilmot, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. which is where like one of the first Gander mountain outlet malls, outlet stores were. I went there literally use like the my very first credit card that i got because i just got a credit card to to go to college okay and i bought arrows nice and honestly went straight back to the shoot by then the shoot was done but i'm like can i go finish because i was ingrained with you start you finish what you start you always finish what you start don't quit so i went back and even though the tournament was over i shot the remaining targets nice. and then the next day i was in the shop which was called gat guns um they're in like dundee illinois all the people that did good they had like polo shirts on that said like gat guns shooting oh, nice. staff and so i was in gat guns monday morning and i was just in there just watching this archery which was I didn't know there were archery shops. I didn't know there was like cool targets. Mm. I was looking at like fiber optic sites. Like I was seeing all, I was like, this is the coolest thing. Cause you know, as far as I knew the bows that I got, like that was it. And I didn't even, hadn't even been taken to an archery shop ever before. So next thing I know I was in there that day, just honestly stalking people, just like watching people Mm -hmm. and the manager of this, this place came over and he's like, kid, what are you doing? And I just said, I'm just watching. And he said, come here in the back. And he took me in the back and he said, listen, I was supposed to do these arrows for this customer. He's like, I'm going to show you how to do this. Will you do these arrows? And I just said, yeah, show me what to do. So next thing I know, I started doing these arrows and I like came out an hour later and I go, okay, here they are. And he's like, these look awesome. 
start on these. And so over the course of like two weeks, uh, I was just showing up at this archery shop and this manager was just like teaching me to fletch arrows. And that was really all I was doing. And, uh, he was handing out some paychecks to employees that worked at this facility. It was mainly a gun shop, but the the Mm -hmm. upstairs was all archery. And I said, Hey, um, do you think I could get a paycheck? And he just said, he like looked at me and he goes, kid, you can't put a value on what I'm teaching you. (laughs) And I said, well, (laughs) I I can't put gas in my tank (laughs) to come here if I'm not getting paid. So he, he literally said, if you want to work here, I'll, I'll offer you like a full-time part. It's four ten an hour. It was four ten an hour. So I left, I left college essentially bailed to pursue archery because of how bad I was at it. It just, I had to get good. The fact that I knew I sucked that bad Mm. just made me like go all in. And then honestly, from that day, fast forward 12 months later, I was shooting at a world championship. I had qualified like at a local thing to shoot an IBO world championship, drove out to Flatwoods, West Virginia, not sponsored at this point. Not, no, you're just no. your own stuff. Yeah, boom. Yeah, I was driving that B- Mazda B2000 truck. Had a Coleman tent. I bought it at Walmart. Nineteen bucks. Slept in the tent. Did the, this tournament, and then honestly, for and and out of four hundred, I remember my first like world championship as an as an amateur. I barely broke three hundred. Okay. I mean, that is as like as bad as you could get. 18 months from from that day, uh-huh. I turned pro. That's wild. So during this like liter during this 18 month window of my life, mm-hmm. I went full throttle into something that I sucked bad at that I had to because I was very athletic. I could really pick up anything naturally mm-hmm. and do it better than you know, if I played on any kind of sports team, I was going to be on a varsity team. You know, that's just like, it didn't matter if it was even a sport I didn't like that. I was just athletic. Mm -hmm. I sucked at this and it really bugged me. And then once I got in and I started to get good, well, then I got competitive with myself because I'm, you know, I'm seeing my scores go up, but I also know where the bar was. Okay. And I'm like, I don't want to let off the gas till I at least know I'm good at this thing. Okay. And so I was like, at that tournament showed me a new bar of archery of like, this is actually how good you can get at this. And then with, and honestly, I went to some of those events and I ended up helping other manufacturers, like I would help out manufacturers when I'd be there. And Matthews was setting up a booth at one of these things and they were really behind, you know, kind of like us when we go to most tags, we're like scrambling to get our booth up. And I ended up saying, hey, you know, what do you guys need? What do you need to help out with? And so I just started helping. And next thing you know, like that next week, Matt McPherson called me. And Matthews was very small, maybe like 20 employees at the time. Okay. And said, I I loved your interaction with people. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm hiring some sales reps. I want to hire some sales reps. We're, we're trying to grow. And so, yeah, literally at 18, you know, during 18 month window of time, I went from being probably one of the worst amateurs there, like last on the page of results at this first world championship to then, you know, being working internally at Matthews, being a Matthews pro shooter, winning rookie of the year, you know, like 
it was crazy. If 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 that if it would have been nowadays where that was on social media, mm -hmm. people would have been saying, "How is this guy this bad?" And then now he's on like a pro yeah. level. And so for me, everything I teach, I I don't teach what I've what I learn from what I read. I teach based on what got me better mm -hmm. from all the mistakes I made. Yeah. So my whole method is based like when i see people struggle i know why they're struggling because i was bad at that same thing mm -hmm. so i can be like hey here's what your mind's thinking right and they go yeah and i'm like okay well you're trying to do this but here's why it's not working mm -hmm. because you you're you read this and you're trying to do this but you're missing this little element of right. it and so as my platform grew personally like as i got more successful as a shooter it started to build the the platform for me to be able to teach. And I started mm -hmm. out as a writer. I don't know if you... I didn't know that. So the very, like, kind of the before knock on archery, yeah. um, I had a website, dudleyarchery.info. Okay. And... Dot info. Yeah. I didn't even know there was a dot Yeah. Info. Someone, someone took dudleyarchery.com. I've actually bought it back now. But at the time... I wrote like 250 pages a year huh. for seven different uh, archery federation magazines. So I would write archery techniques and I had translators in different languages. So like, you know, Antoine would translate all my articles to French and then I would distribute them to like, you know, no tier, tier le arc and, huh. you know, like le chase. And, huh. and so I wrote for, you know, the Spanish Federation, the Italian Federation, and the German Federation, and England. Are I you still at like, Matthews at the time? Are you still a professional? Yeah, so? yeah. Well, at that time, that I yeah, I started writing my rookie season. I actually got a call a column in. A, there was a magazine out that was called 3D Times, <laughs> and it was a magazine specifically for 3D shooting, and it had um, it was almost like a yellow pages where yeah. it had the dates of every archery shoot in every state. So every Every two months when you'd get this, you would open it up and you'd be like, okay, I'm in Illinois. Yeah. Here's all the shoots. All the clubs would submit yeah. their their club shoot dates okay. to 3D Times Magazine. Well, um, I, I'm just a people person. I interact well. So I was at these venues as a rookie and or as a, as a semi-pro first. Yeah. So I was an amateur, sucked, went semi-pro, like just went in head first, went semi-pro, did pretty well. And right before I went pro, this magazine, the editor of this magazine, her name was Lealani. She said, would you like to write a column called Rookie on Tour? Because she knew I was like living out of my car mm -hmm. going to these shoots. That's a great idea. Because I was too young to rent a car. You know, I couldn't rent cars. Right. I would fly to shoots and I would sit on my bow case at the luggage carousel. And when someone else would show up with bow cases, I'd be like, hey, are you guys going to the ASA over and blah? He'd be like, yeah, kid, jump in. Wow. That's how it like started. Yeah. So Leelani asked me to write an, um, a series called Rookie on Tour. So I started writing um, a series based on like, what I had to do to go to an event and like nice. how I shot and I scored and what my goals were going to be yeah. for the next tournament and what I would work on and how I would do it. So it's, that's how my writing started. Did you keep those magazines? You still have them? Oh yeah, I still have that's them. Awesome. Yeah, I still have them. So then as I wrote, 
I because the magazines didn't like get to all my friends, mm-hmm. I started DudleyArchery.info. Okay. And so all What my, year is this? Are you are you early an early adopter here? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. That's early. Yeah, ninety eight. And so what I would do is I would write for free. Um, as long and my agreement with all the publications was that I would write for free as long as I had full rights to the images that I used in my articles. They had to be only be mine. And so my images were images I would take, which were images that did well for my sponsors. Mm. And so I was always giving free information to the consumer, but it was really what I was giving the exposure I was giving to the manufacturers mm-hmm. what fed the free information to the dealer. That's yeah. how it started. And so then what I did was I, I made a deal to where I would write for free, submit photos for free and just give them free content. But after three months, they would provide me with the PDF that I could then put on DudleyArchery.info. Nice. So all of my writing in all these languages were available in this spot and you know, and then honestly, that's where it all was until we, we've now recreated a lot of this digital where it's visual, uh-huh. digital. It's not writing. I actually want to get all my writing back yeah. onto our platform, and then we just put a huge investment for Knock on Archery. My wife Sharon and and honestly, she's like everything you do. Your people want to know. Like, put it all has to be brought forward. So we really worked hard to develop a website that allowed us to have the store where our products were. Right. But more importantly, there's actually a word, a WordPress side of our website that just, it's, it's so awesome. And people really don't utilize it to their Mm. capability because I think they're just so used to, you know, going to YouTube and like searching something. Uh, But on our, on our website, we've got a whole, you know, you can go in there and be like school of knock mm -hmm. and you can look at like equipment reviews. You can look at like technique. You can look at like, you know, how to work on your bow. You can go through school of knock seasons. You can, it's so great. Your website is knock on.com or knock on archery. Knock on archery.com. So there's all that. And, you know, but it all, originally started with dudleyarchery.info and it was me just giving as much free information as i could to the industry or to the community but that exposure in all those languages and everything was so valuable to the manufacturers that the manufacturers started supporting me and them supporting me is what it was the fuel for me giving back to the industry. So there was like a five year window of time, dude, where just all of a sudden it became very apparent to me yeah. that like archery is, is part of my life and it's a God given. This is, this is like beyond me. This is like a gift. This is what I'm meant to do mm-hmm. because my success with it, I'm not really sure like why I should be, good at pulling a string back and letting a bow go. I don't really know why I should be good at like talking the fundamentals about all this stuff. So I'm not a hundred percent why that was my calling, but during that window of time of when I suck so bad, I could not finish a tournament and my personal competitiveness made me go back and finish, made me go into that archery shop the next day to like watch the ones that are good and try to figure it out on my own. And then, you know, that, lady Leilani saying hey will you write this rookie on tour column because dude i barely graduated 
high school English. And honestly, I wouldn't have graduated if I wasn't a ball player. There's no way because I don't remember anything. The one thing I remember, I told someone about this uh, two days ago because they uh, they're like, I love when I find your writing. I actually love like it's so simple for me to like process it. Hmm. And I go, you know why it's so simple for you to process it? And he goes, what? And I go, the only thing I remember about English class, as I said, I remember as a freshman, one of my first assignments was how to write a story. And they gave us the outline and they said, okay, you have one paragraph as your intro to where you're going to, you have to, you know, the first two sentences grab attention. Then with the following sentences, you should outline what they are going, give them a teaser of what they are going to read in the next chapters. And, and in those sentences, stress the subtopics of your content. And then those subtopics, you know, keep them here. They are, you laid them out in your intro and then build a conclusion that finishes the, the attention grabber. It it was literally like the basis of like how to write a story, but I remember it. And it said, then in your conclusion, you recap quickly what they need to do based on your subtopics and then finish your attention grabbing thing in your final two sentences. Dang, you remember all that? That is that, that is literally every single thing I write. It is nice. That's all I remember. And if it weren't for spell check, no one could probably read it. You know, spell check's I mean? very helpful. Yes, unless it corrects it to something different than you really mean, which sometimes happens as you're writing. And I was like. never. Um, I was always like training. No matter what I did, I feel like I was always doing and training. So I never read a lot. Yeah. I'm, I don't have a very broad vocabulary. And so I think when I give um, instruction, I am very like, I'm almost so simple like that. And I, I lay it out that way to where I think it just becomes easy for people. It's like almost dumbed down so much to where the information is very good and it, and people see immediate results, but it's just simple enough to where people can understand it. And, and honestly, that's how I like to consume yeah. new endeavors too. And the other thing is I feel like I do things better if I know the why. Yeah. So every single thing about our brand is I always offer the why. Yeah. You know, hey, we have this release. Here's why it's the best mm-hmm. release. This is based on, you know, decades of me studying this. This is based on a study that I did with the Australian Federation where we use robotic hands and worked on the ergonomics of, you know, what what makes the cleanest release possible for like Aeroflight and string path and, you know, How do you start people off? Do you start them off with a, if, if someone comes to you, do you hand them a silverback or you hand them a knock to it? Or what do you hand them? A hundred percent silverback and a shot trainer. Yeah. Cause I started with the knock to it. So yeah. I love it. I yeah. just, so I, so I don't, I know. But you so, understand trigger. Mm. See, like imagine if someone's just like tink instead of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. See, I feel like, um, if there was a trigger system and a gun that forced snipers to trust the float more mm-hmm. and it was like a full surprise i i personally feel like there would be a whole nother level of that accuracy that would mm-hmm. come forward because non-anticipation of the shot is really what separates the cream of the crop in archery from mm-hmm. the people that just never can get to that level it is it is a hundred percent trust in the front pin and trigger control and like you know 
unanticipation of when that's going to go off. It's like I go through this process and then this shot executes when I do all these things and it needs to be a surprise. I feel like I have a start, if I started with the, if you handed me the silverback like a long time ago, you then need, I, I'd be yeah. on, I would have just kept it and yep. done that. But I had the knock to it right off the bat. And I do like having, I don't know if in my head, I do look for me. I love the knock to it. I just think it's yeah. awesome. Uh, so that's what I, what I use. But I also realized that, Hey, if, if I, you'd handed me a silverback and I, did, the, did it come out after the knock yep. to it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like if I had that one first, I'd probably still be with, with that one. See, originally, the very first, the silverback actually wasn't the silverback at the beginning. It was, so this went back to, I was coaching the Indian team. So I was in India for an extended period of time. And how long were you there? Um, probably about a month. Okay. Um, and I remember prior to me going, I knew that they were tr- trigger anticipators because I had studied them shooting. Mm-hmm. And so I came back and I told Jerry Carter, who Jerry was like my very first, you know, spot. He was my very first sponsor because Jerry actually would rent the car and let me drive him around. That's how I got out of living out of my car at shoots was Jerry Carter, you know, and I had to sit in his booth and help him sell releases. So that's how that started. So I told Jerry, I said, I need something to where when I'm teaching these teams, they don't have the ability to set the trigger off with their thumb. I want to just teach pull. Mm-hmm. Like I want to just teach dynamics. You know, you keep pulling, pulling, pulling. You have to be on the target. Your pin has to be on the target and you have to be dynamically pulling through the shot. And all of a sudden it's a surprise. And he's just like, well, we might be able to do that. If we take a release, put a spring in it to where the spring is heavier than the holding weight. And, and then we ended up, making a release that way and I, and I once I told him like here's how I'm going to teach with this product we I said this is going to create a whole new evolution to learning archery mm-hmm. so the original was called the evolution yeah. and I went out and filmed a DVD literally like a mile down the road from my home at like a local archery shop out in their their little archery range to the side of this building i like filmed this how to shoot an evolution release you know and and i said this will be the whole new evolution to archery Mm -hmm. because it was a whole new training principle and so this started and i went to india and i took 10 of those evolutions and 10 string like shot like pieces of string on a grip Mm-hmm. yeah the same thing that like i have yes and so i took all their bows away i love that thing. and i made them shoot i taught them shot execution shot process and kind of reprogrammed them and just said this is how you shoot this release you don't know when it's you it goes off when you execute a perfect shot and so they just trained on releases and strings for almost a week mm. and then i gave one of the female what happened was i started saying okay I rate my shooting not based on my score that I turn I turn in. I either make a perfect 10. You know, I learned what a 10 was. This this will go back to another uh, and remind me, like, there's there's only two steps to a perfect archery shot. Okay, but I learned what my 10 was. And so what I did was I was teaching these, these students, your shot isn't, there's no goods or bad, like, there's no, it doesn't matter the score. You either execute a perfect shot based on the system that I'm teaching you, mm-hmm. 
or you didn't do something right about it, and that's fine, but don't check it as a good shot. So when I'd come off a pro range and people, you know, there's 40 targets, people would say, how you shoot today? I'd be like, I had 38 good ones. That's how I talked. Mm. I might be last on the shooting list, but if I executed 38 good shots and they just didn't land where I needed them to, I didn't judge myself mm. based on score. I judged okay. myself based on technique. So I was teaching this. And we had we used to shoot thirty six arrow passes for like feet of competitions. There'd be you'd shoot thirty six arrows at, at thirty meters, fifty meters, seventy meters, ninety meters. But usually those passes would be thirty six arrow passes. So mm. like a perfect a perfect world record would be a three sixty. And at the time, like at the time, um, at the time the female world record at seventy meters was three fifty two. So, uh, that would have been eight arrows off out of 36. Um, so we were executing with these strings and I would have people just like point down at 70 meters and they would go through the process and pull, pull, pull. And it would just go off and this string would just fall to the ground. Yeah. But I'd have them write down. Good. Was, did I shoot a 10 according to how I rate myself? Yes or no. And this one female who was actually number three on the team, she came forward to me twice and said, Sir, I, I, 32, 32 out of 36, like perfect shots. So I said, okay, can you go grab your equipment? This was on the sixth day. And I bring this number three ranked female to the line at 70 meters. And I said, I want you to now shoot based on what we're talking about. We're, none of us are going down to the target, but you're going to shoot 36 arrows. So the entire team sat there while she would go through this process, let off her safety, she'd pull, pull, execute. She'd, like, turn to me, close her eyes, and she'd say, it was a 10. Mm. And we went through, and sure enough, she did 32 good shots out of a 36 arrow pass. And I was the one going down pulling the arrows. You know, I so wasn't, yep. And so I pulled that, I grabbed that target, and I brought it back. And she had just shot a 356. Wow, seventy meter yeah. practice round that would have beat a new, uh, been a new four point world record to the females. Wow. And I said, "This is based on execution. Yeah. You shooting a ten, your ten, not everyone else's, yours." And so this that actually came down to a basic principle that a coach had said to me one time, but I never really understood it. Um. It was more or less said as a joke, but I like applied it. So it was, there's only two, there's two steps to perfect archery. Step one is learn to shoot a 10. Okay. Step two is repeat step one. Nice. That was I like, got to make it into I, a book. We got to put that in the series. If we make it to Savage Son, I paid put that for in that. There. I paid a coach to like, I paid for coaching when I was an amateur and I paid a guy for like a couple hours. And that was the base of like what I got, like, First, you learn to shoot a 10. Mm. So now I've expanded on that, and I actually start, I start my entire, if I work with a student, like Clean Slate Mm -hmm. or Jocko or whatever, first thing I write on my board is there's two steps to perfect archery. Step one is learn to shoot a 10. Step two is repeat step one, right? But then I say, but here's the thing. There are exceptions to this rule. And so then what I do is I go on to, especially people that are in the archery community, I go on to explain the exceptions, which I'll name names, and they're names that are, they're like elites to archery. 
they're amazing. They're also gifted. And what I, re- I kind of relate it to Tiger Woods. I said, okay, listen, Tiger is an exception. When everyone tried to make his drive, his swing, look like the swing that everyone says, this is the most efficient swing. When they tried, when those swing coaches tried to change his swing, his game went back because mm. he was naturally gifted, right? I'm naturally gifted. There's certain things that I can that yeah. I can do, but there's also like there's shooters that have terrible form. Like they'll, you know, well, how come this guy can lean back so far, but right. you tell me I can't? I'm like, okay, this is the exception. That person has learned to shoot their ten, and they are so good at repeating step one that they that they've mastered archery. However. The majority of the populace mm-hmm. can they are not the exception. So in that case, they have to be they have to have a systematic approach that makes their body in a repeatable position, and then they have to have a checklist of making an archery shot to where that process is also repeatable. Yeah. And I said, so with that, I'm here to tell you, I'm not an exception, and you're not an exception, and I had to learn on a on a technique that was based on recurve archery that puts the body in a, in a, in a, in a fundamental position to where you are able to repeat the same exact shot Mm -hmm. using this mechanical device. So I'm like, we have to, I, and then I work with the string and I work with the silverback and when I see them and then I'll give them a bow eventually after some time. And when I, when I'm shooting with them and I see that first time where they're like, whoa that one felt and i'm like i can see when they shot their 10 and i'm like okay so now this is your 10 you just experienced what when i shoot and you watch me shoot Mm -hmm. that is now the bar of you judging yourself on whether you shot a 10 or whether you maybe scored a 10 but got by you know with not proper technique but for me that's the new bar yeah. So when I shoot or when I practice, I practice based on how many times have I executed the exact thing that I know makes perfect archery. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I base my shooting on. And that's what I try to do through my teaching yeah. is here's methods that simplify. And I'm trying to help people find their 10. And I'm also trying to tell people like with the silverback, that thing teaches you almost equally what's good about a shot but Uh when you break down why it's so hard because there's if you don't do it right it's hard but the thing is don't ignore that because if you actually clean that up the rest actually is easier you're you're putting a band-aid over the real problem Mm -hmm. and when you like give way and you submit to that problem and be like, you know what, this evil thing, this target panic or this anticipation rears its head because I'm trying to shoot someone else's. I'm worried about the pro the prize and not the process. See, I judge myself on the process and not the prize. And, and honestly, like from some of the psychology books that I've like studied on sports psychology, it really comes down to like, from what I've read, there's really two different types of mentalities in sport. There's ego driven and there's task driven. Mm. I'm very task driven. I'm a hundred percent. Okay. Losing a tournament, knowing that I literally executed a perfect shot. And if someone's only watching me on TV, 
they're like, man, that guy looks smooth when he shoots. Mm. Cause I'm striving for that. Yeah. You know, if the wind blows this arrow a little bit off yeah. or if I'm like darting around and I'm fighting the elements, I'm just like pull through and execute a good shot. I want to be able to go home at night and know that I didn't anticipate a shot. I didn't punch a trigger. I didn't like, I didn't cheat myself by like letting a moment dictate the quality of like this craft that mm -hmm. I'm just like trying to hone. So that's really what I try to portray through our brand Yeah, is, you know, the importance of like understanding what a good shot is. And when I watch, like when I go up to, and I watch people this weekend, I watched a thousand people shoot. How many people, yeah. How many over the course of the last few months have you watched shoot at total archer challenge? Well, this year I haven't counted photos. I know last year I have photos with over 12,000 individuals. It's wild. Wild. Right. So I know I always tell people, I'm like, I don't look at where your arrow lands mm -hmm. when, when I watch you shoot, yeah. like if someone just did everything I said and like made a good shot, they could blank the target. And I'd be like, you know what? Congratulations, dude, to make a shot like that in front of me. And I know you're nervous being here in front of me. That's a huge step. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. I, don't, I wouldn't care if that thing like skipped off Bigfoot's head and hit a tree. If, if I watch someone like, you know, on a step up with a silverback and people do, they come up and, you know, I'll see them draw back and they'll let off the safety and they're just pulling and pulling. And it's probably taking a second or two longer because Dud's standing right there watching. All of a sudden it goes off and I, I see him just like, and I go, Hey, that was freaking awesome. Thank yeah. you for showing me that because everything we put forward and we put forward for free is to try to give you a moment where you can stand in front of someone in a high pressure situation and execute what you're taught. To and you're doing flawless. that 12, 000, over 12,000 times uh, with people who come up. They're like, many, hey, uh, yeah. let me see you. Let me see you shoot, dad. Or like yeah. you have those competitions at the end of the day or you're walking the course with a group or whatever else. Other groups come up or whatever. You catch up to somebody and everybody wants to see you shoot. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, because we, I actually, when I was flying here, you know what came up in my memories, like going back to this? Me, you, and Andy at Snowbird. Right here, yeah, yeah. At Snowbird uh -huh. when... It, we, the, like none of us had officially sponsored TAC. Yeah. Yeah. Remember I, I was there for the Cabela's. I was there because Cabela's and Easton asked me if I would personally shoot their, they had like all the Cabela's black card members had okay. like, had like, or some of them, I think there were 20 of them that got to do that Easton experience where okay. they went to the, oh, yeah. the factory and all that. And mm -hmm. then they said, what do we need to do? Well, they actually, they have certain days of my life because, you know, I've been with Easton for 25 years. So they oh, said, wow. will you come and shoot with these individuals and like teach them how to shoot every target? Like what wow. do you think about when yeah, you yeah. step to the stake, give them some advice while they're shooting. So I went to do that on day one, but I had told Andy like, Hey, we can shoot this thing. And then you came out. Yeah, remember? I do. And, yeah, yeah. and the three of us, shot that time yeah and and honestly that was before any of us were like involved with tack yeah like well, i'd gone a few years earlier with my daughter so i'd met barclow out there at snowbird 
I forget how many times they'd done it at Snowbird. So, um, so I'd just done it for, with my daughter and yeah. and when she was young and, and then, uh, with Barklow, just meeting him up there. And well, then and you so had to fun. have went to the very first, one of the first few that probably. Sean put on there. Yeah, probably. Cause you would have been a year or two ahead of me. Yeah. And then, even. then we linked up there and it was just me and Andy walking that, that course. And it was, it was awesome. I remember I just flown back from somewhere. So got in super late, got up the next day. And then I had my, uh, Gosh, what was it? It was the Sitka Pattern Prime Alloy, I think that it was, that I was shooting yep. shooting then. Yeah. And uh, and that was a blast. We it had a great, great time. And then I think you zipped off to the airport right from there um, and uh, and went home. But it, gosh, what a beautiful place. I love tech. Oh, so, yeah. It's so awesome. And I think what happened, too, was like you and Andy, when you shot with me, I think all of a sudden you had this new vi- visual of, wait, we're not that good at this. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, cause I'm sure the seals, cause Jocko told me, he's like, listen, if we go to like practice pistols, it might be fun and games for like the first few, but like Competition. people are going to go, like, go full <laughs> throttle at some yeah. point. So I think with Andy, once he like, you know, lost an arrow or like <laughs> I hit the 10 and he didn't, it just like lit this fire, yeah. like a competitive fire. Right. And I think that, you know, I think that's happened through all of our friend networks. Yeah. So now when we go out and listen, we have, I have friends right now and obviously mutual friends where they can go out and learn and like go through the school and knock and, and, you know, get this shot trainer and like a release. Yeah, yeah. And within like months, be as good as we were after a deck because yeah. you started early like me yeah i wasn't as good as some of the, like we go to the adaptive shoot like some of these adaptive people they come in on like a wednesday we teach them archery and then mm-hmm. we're taking them on a course on friday remember Amazing. we do, so remember awesome. when we did yeah, that right at snow basin yeah at snow basin they had never shot yeah. before we took them out and that was awesome. they're shooting better in a day and a half than i think i was probably 10 years into like us like yeah. taking our bows and shooting at bales of hay yeah. right so it's it's so cool that that learning curve has been you know it's not like yeah. this hard spike now it's just like man short, oh, yeah. short peter well, there's nowhere to go you didn't know where to go i mean all you did was like okay i pull this thing back and <laughs> then i let go and of course there's no releases back in the day Introducing the PARD TD32 Multi-Spectral Rifle Scope, combining thermal and night vision for unbeatable performance. Effortlessly switch between daytime, night vision, and thermal modes with the picture-in-picture feature. Spot targets accurately with thermal and night vision precision. Hit your mark every time, day or night, with a built-in 1,200-yard laser rangefinder. Upgrade your shooting game with the TD32 Multi-Spectral Rifle Scope, Bipard. I'm installing this on a rifle this week and I'm fired up to give it a run. Go to PARD.com to get your TD32 multi spectral rifle scope today. Hey, when, when did you get your first release? Did you Were there releases when you started, when you did that year long deal? I, I would say 93. I remember I had like a Cobra. It was like Cobra. a plastic one with like a plunger on the end and it you like kind of flip. Do you remember? Okay. Do you remember ever over. seeing one of those? It no. kind of looked like. It kind of looked like one of those Alaskan knives. Really? Kind of like okay, but yeah that that was my first release, and then the first wrist strap yeah. release I got was more like a glove. Ah, Did you ever have no, the one where you put your no. thumb it was through? Always, no. Yep. 
I think my original, my first release is actually over there. So I'll we'll have to look at it after this and see what it, yeah. what it was. But, uh, but I remember it being a whole new, I never thought about that. Yep. I was like, Oh wow. It was always just your, like your fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had a little, you know, the little, the little strap with your little three pieces of leather or something yeah. like that. Maybe four, I forget. Uh, I think I still have a couple of those. As yeah. There'd well. be a hole through it. And then, yeah, it was like a three finger tab is, you know, yep, is kind that's of exactly, yeah, exactly. But now, I mean, that's come a long way. You know, who's releases. surprising at how they shoot? Chris is, Chris is good. Oh yeah. Pratt's good. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, I don't show pictures of him cause obviously, right. you know, a lot of our friends, I think we've got, you know, we have some pretty cool pictures mm-hmm. where they're personal, but you know, there's been times where people are like, how is Chris? And I'm like. If you saw him shoot, you would know that he's like watched some stuff. He's mm-hmm. got he's got really good posture, and you know, photos of people can, f- at least from my eyes, show efficient yeah, can, show efficiency very fast. Right, you can tell. And you, you've like, got the eye. Yeah, and he's naturally athletic. Yeah, to you. yeah, he's a big boy and he's strong. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, yeah. Hopefully, we get some more archery into. The next few seasons, especially if we go to and do a Savage Sun season or something, um, yeah, that's we'll going to really kick. Yeah, in. then we'll get to showcase that a little more, which would be would be awesome. But uh, and then Matthew, so how did so you you did Matthew start sponsoring you and you start traveling the world and how many bows when you travel would you do for competitions? Did you just have the one or do you have a backup that you're traveling with? Or what is that like? So. Um, so I, I started at Matthews when I was 18. I worked there for just under 10 years. There's Matthews um, right right there. I think the first one yep, is Matthews right yep. there. And um, which was amazing because I started, yes, I started as a pro shooter because that was my rookie season as well. But I also started working as a manufacturer. So I was using vacation time to go shoot on the tour until I got like good enough where they were like, you need to be out shooting, Mm. especially after winning rookie of the year and then winning some titles that, you know, they wanted me to do that. And then eventually, um, I ended up making a U.S. team. I traveled to Croatia and shot with internationally. And when I was doing the bow count, I came back and I'm like, listen, we have no present. Like we might sponsor some shooters over here, but we are missing a market. And so they just said, well, what do you think we should need to do? And I kind of told them. And because I was traveling for the U S team internationally so much, I was meeting these dealers and I started doing seminars and I started coaching other teams. Mm -hmm. And when I left Matthews, I was our international sales and marketing manager was kind of my, my main title. Um, and then when I left to go out on my own and start consulting for a lot of different brands, okay, I kind of assumed Matt would, or, you know, I say Matt, but Matthews would still let me be affiliated with Matthews. I actually didn't want to not shoot a Matthews. I wanted to just be more or less like a pro shooter that was external mm-hmm. and let them sponsor me to be on my own. But I just felt like I was, there were too many rules with mm-hmm. me being internal at that point. And looking back, their co- you know, our company went from like 30 people to we were in 500 twice. Wow. And, you know, and we went through like the growing pains of a company of yeah. like, you know, people abusing travel. And because uh-huh. I was under the umbrella, I traveled because I was competing. And so all of a sudden I like fell under this umbrella of a new HR department that comes in. And uh-huh. it just, it, it was chains I wanted to like yeah. cut off. And then it became apparent, like, if you're not going to play our way, then we're, then you can't play at all. So then I was forced 
to go on the market. And Hoyt knew they did not want to work against me. And they brought me in. They're like, we're not really sure what we're going to do if you're like an independent. Like, what's your vision? And I was, I just wanted to go out and like grow archery. And, yeah. and I honestly didn't have a vision. I just knew that I could do a lot of good things for a lot of companies. And Matthews had pretty much said, like, if you're not going to be internal, that's it. You're done. And so I left kind of having this really hard separation that one day prior, neither one of us knew was even a possibility. Yeah. Um, and then I remember driving home and I was really upset and Jerry Carter happened to call me and he's like, and I said, I just left Matthews and he's like, what? And I said, yeah, I just left Matthews. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to do. Cause I mean, it was a very big salary. You know, I was, I was doing some incredible sales numbers mm. and competing. And at the time had like, I think I was like, had like a number two world ranking at that time internationally was just shooting. I was at the apex of my, of okay. my shooting career technically. And then all of a sudden I'm just like cut off yeah. from what well, literally was the base of not necessarily my, a bad position to be in. Yeah. And so Jerry said, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I've got to figure out a way to, to, um, to pay my mortgage. You know, I said, I, I don't really know, but I've got like two months severance to figure it out. And so Jerry, I said, you know, I want to pay my mortgage. And I think it was like, you know, whatever it was. And Jerry goes, would you be willing to do what you did for Matthews for us? And he's like, April needs help with, with ad buys. She doesn't really know, like, we really need help laying out our ads she, you know, she doesn't know like where's the proper place to put these things. And, you know, we need some help with like pro staff. And I'm like, he goes, can I just hire you as like a consultant and you do that for Carter and help take some pressure away from April. And I'm like, and then he offered me like, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to pay my house payment that, that next month or, you know, at mm. the end of the two months severance pay. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, dude, that sounds great. And then you know, this 20 minute ride from, from Matthews to where my house was during that drive, I had the call with Jerry, got home. I was out on my deck sitting there like, Oh my God, like what happened? You know? Um, and then my phone rings and it was Jared Lyle, who at the time was general manager of trophy taker. And he's like, I was just talking with Carter and he told me you're going to help them with their international ad buys and, and, you know, kind of, he said that you're going to help them with some of your international sales. Cause I, you know, I know every account I, by that point I had done seminars and mm. most shops and clubs all through Europe and, wow. you know, across the world. So I was like, he said, he told me he was going to do this and just pay you a flat monthly rate of this. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you want to do it? And he said, yeah. And then the next call was Mike Slinkard, who at the time owned Winner's Choice Strings. Now he owns Hex. He's mm -hmm. like, hey, Jared, I was just talking with Jared about this project we got coming up, and he said that you're going to help them with their international sales and marketing and their pro staff. I go, yeah. He goes, will you do that for Winner's Choice? And I'm like, by, by the third call, I go, yeah, it's just a monthly rate of blah, 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 based on like what Jerry had told, mm -hmm. you know. And, dude, I'm not kidding. I left – Matthews and made this 20 mile drive, like thinking I was going to throw up in my own car. Like why, why did you dig your heels in and like stick up for yourself and like dig in on this subject when you, 
had a really good thing going to then 24 hours later, I was already working for nine companies. That one of them's Hoyt or? And, and Hoyt was actually, um, the, I've never told this story. I'll tell it. So Darren Cooper and Zach Kurtzall, Zach is now the president of Hoyt. Zach was an engineer and Zach also shot competitively. And he shot on the tour with me. He's like, I just heard you left Matthews. Is that true? And I said, yeah, it is. And he's like, we need to figure out, like, he goes, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've asked Matthews that I wanted to work with them. They told me I'm either all in or all out. And I said, but I have severance pay for the next 60 days. And he's like, would you be willing to meet with Looper and Randy Walk about what you're going to do? And honestly, within the first 24 hours, um, John Shepley had called me at the time, the president of Bowtech. And then the third call was Zach asking me. And he said, will you meet with Randy and Looper? And I said, and I honestly, I knew deep down if I was going to still be an international sales and marketing kind of guru and competitor, Hoyt was definitely the brand that had the most, like they had the most clout internationally. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, out of all the brands, for what I'm doing, that tool is going to be, okay, so this was 24 hours after a depart, my departure with Matthews. He has that call with me, and I said, and he was actually on the phone. Zach was on the phone with um, George Tekmachov, uh, or Technichov, who worked for Hoyt and Easton. Mm. And George was on the phone, too, and they go, do you want to meet? And I said, I don't think it's fair to Matthews that I go to Hoyt tomorrow. I said, you know, and I said, but I'll meet on neutral ground. And George said, will you fly to Easton? And I said, yeah, I'll fly to Easton. When do you want me? And they're like, tomorrow. So <laughs> they ended up sending, I think they sent an email to my, to my email. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe not. I don't know. But it pretty much said like, hey, we'll see you tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Well, that email went through the Matthews server. So I think Matthews saw this thing and to them, they probably thought I was like immediately jumping ship. Mm. But I, I had made it very clear. I want to meet on neutral ground. And I told him, I'm like, I'm only going to make a decision based on how good I am with that tool. Mm. So I said, I've never really shot a Hoyt. I go, do you think you guys can, I would like to shoot him at the Easton center. So I flew out. And I met him at Easton out back, and I just said, before I have any conversations, I'm not going to use any product if I can't actually use it. Mm -hmm. So Zach had built me a Hoyt that he thought I would like because it was based on the specs of the bow I was shooting at the time, which was an Apex, which I was doing really, really well with. And so I took this Hoyt, and I still have it. If, if you ever like look at when I'm practicing – at the top of the stairs in my range, there's a big target face up there, mm. and there's a bow hanging above it. That's the first Hoyt I ever shot. Nice. And um, I went to Easton, and I shot a full feet around, which a full feet is 1440 is the highest possible points. At the time, the world record was a 1412. There was maybe five people who had ever broke 1400. So I went out there. And I shot a full feet around with this first Hoyt that they built me. And I shot a 1428 on a brand new, two brand new faces. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I like, 
I actually, I beat the 90 meter record. I tied the 70 meter record. I beat a 50 meter record and I be, and I tied the 30 meter record Yeah. in this practice round. Like, no, it's not a tournament. This is practice. But still to me, I, I literally said, I'll talk to you. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you guys in a couple months. I know this thing works funny enough. I never shot that bow ever in competition ever again for, and I tried but for whatever reason, that thing worked on the day that nice. I, that I yeah. had to convince myself. So I pretty much told him, listen, I'm not going to put any of my egg. I'm not putting all my eggs into one basket. I'm going to, I want to write. I want to teach. I want to work with teams. I want to coach. Mm -hmm. If you give me a monthly thing of this, like, you know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a shooting contract. I didn't like, if I went in one tournaments, I could, I could not even make contingency money. I went to work for Hoyt a hundred percent to start writing for international teams, start helping teams. So they were on board with you being able to do a bunch of, yeah, other they just wanted to see They're you know, they even said, they're like, we don't really know where you fit with us, but we know we don't want to work against you. And I just knew that I, that their tool let me compete and their name got me in the door. Mm -hmm. And so that's how that started. And then what happened was, as I built my relationship with Hoyt, what they would do is every every year I would work with the team on like, hey, we're going to focus our sales on this place, South Africa. Africa was mm -hmm. one of them. Um, we want to grow sales in South Africa. What do we need to do? So I started coaching the team for free. Um, I'd go down, work with the team. I would do this through the Hoyt distributor. Uh, magnum archery and got to know seppi and you know for like three years we traveled to south africa and we'd work with oh. some of the archers at times and and stuff like that but then the next year the the initiative was australia which i wrote for two different publications in australia um at the time so i actually went down there and i'm like hey what are the other writers that are writing for you right now that are good people and they gave me the names and then I took them bows and I gave them lessons and I made, helped them shoot better. And I would give them like nuggets on like how to work on their gear and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And next thing you know, I'm like converting people over. Well, through this process of like five years, it comes to Canada and this is how knock on begins. They tell me that they want me to focus on helping grow brand marketing or grow market share in Canada. So I went up to Canada and I started talking to shops. Hey, do you want me to come do a free seminar? Do you want me to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, we know you as a shooter. We love you as a shooter, but, and wild TV had just started in Canada, which was the first hunting television mm. to begin up there. They couldn't, they could maybe get DVDs or VHS tapes back then, mm. but like you, they were watching like monster bucks two and three and four. So once wild TV, the network started, well, now they have like, now they're, they've got like celebrities, right? Mm. You know, all these hardcore bow hunters can now have, they yeah. can now watch these shows. So he said, man, we can fill a store right now with any TV personality that's on wild TV. Like, you know, if it's a Michael Waddell or a Ralph and Vicky, like, we will fill the store. But if you're not on wild TV, huh. it's not going to work. Well, prior to this, I had some like DVDs, hunting DVDs. It was D and D bow hunting. It was okay. myself and the, and Zach Kurtzall's best friend at the time, the other engineer at Hoyt, Darren Cooper. We had this DVD that we did together, which was, you know, kind of 
had the, the feel of knock-ons TV mm-hmm. as people know it. It was different at the time, but we sold DVDs out of our car, and that's what we, kind of what we did, right? Okay. So all these little things that I started were with Zach, who's now president at Hoyt, mm-hmm. you know, so, like, he was there from yeah. the beginning of all this stuff. Well, I was given the direction to grow the sales in Canada, what the the owner and the the VP of Wild TV, his name was Helgi. He had bought one of my DVDs that I was selling out of my car at mm-hmm. Hunt at Huntfest in Alberta one time, mm-hmm. and he called me and he's like, "Dude, why don't you put this on TV? These hunts are so cool, edited this way." And I just said, "I can't afford it." So then I ended up calling Helgi and I'm like, "Hey, I need to become a hunting personality." on wild TV because I want to start doing some seminars and stuff up there. And I said, what do you think about me taking my hunts and building the television show? And he's like, dude, if you will do that <laughs> and like, you know, give some of your tips like you're giving, yeah. because we had tips sections in these DVDs, okay. which they weren't allowing on the network because they didn't want you to waste more than X amount of minutes where it wasn't like B roll or hunting footage. Like okay. there's all these parameters to being on network. <laughs> so, he just told me, dude, we'll give you the air. They gave me five days of airtime if yeah. I would actually do our. He's like, I want to see John Dudley hunting shows. Yeah. And so Wild TV gave me it. Nice. And so with that, we had to come up with a name. And I wanted the, the, the nucleus was that I do archery every day, all day, and I want to teach it. So like archery 365 you know, always knocked, like there was all these names and throughout the process, all of a sudden the name, like, you know, we, there was a lot that were taken and we couldn't have, but then knock on the name, like we were just kicking around names and then all of a sudden knock on comes up and I go, no, knock on dude. Like, cause I was already in visualizing my sign off. Ah, I'm just like, knock on dude. And so, so Hoyt offered their artist, Mitch, to help us work on a logo. And so Mitch was like, can you tell me your personality? Can you describe this stuff? And I ended up saying, you know, some people describe me as like an archer mixed with like a surfer, like, cause I'm kind of chill, you know, I'm kind of like the dude, I guess. (laughs) And, uh, I sent, he goes, well, I need to know your personality so I can make a logo that like captures you. Well, I'd actually, hosted some danish archers on an antelope hunt like two weeks prior to that and they were hoyt dealers Mm. and they had got their first antelope and i was behind the thing with them and i was like like that so dude so he he drew the knock with that based on that picture of me celebrating behind you know a fresh kill and as soon as we like and honestly he submitted a page of logos Mm -hmm. but when we saw that one, it was just like, duh, that's it. Right. That's like our, that is us. Like that's, I'm always knocked on yeah. whether I'm, whether I'm designing, whether I'm doing a marketing strategy, whether I'm getting ready for a hunt, whether you're calling me and saying, Hey dud, CBS is going to be out here. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, I, I need an arrow to shoot through their GoPro. Yeah, right here. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it worked. Yeah. So it's like, I'm always knocked on and that. That's literally how the, like the mark became it's awesome. was to, for, for this company that I worked for to be able to get their foot in the door, like for me to be able to get my foot in the door, mm-hmm. 
I had to become a hunting guy, even though that is actually what I always loved more than anything. Yeah. I started filming myself at 17 years old with like over the shoulder VHS. I think you put, didn't you put something like a long while ago on your, on Instagram, you had a picture or yeah. something of you with oh, your, your gear or something yeah. from back in the day with the VHS thing. It was always hunting, but since hunting in a lot of the foreign countries is taboo, mm. DudleyArchery.info was very target related. Yeah. And I didn't, and then I didn't share my hunting stuff on there. Right. It was very target specific. So, and I think that's why D&D bow hunting, that was kind of, I wanted to be able to showcase my hunting side of mm -hmm. what I was passionate about, but I couldn't because there's also, a, and that's, that's what's so like delicate to me about our, our, in America, we have a lot of things that we take for granted and I traveled a lot of places in the world and, you know, you've spent a lot of time in South Africa and Africa um, listen, you can't bow hunt in every single country, you know, France, Spain, Africa, Australia, Canada, like Scandinavia, there's Denmark, like that's it mm. to go shoot something with a bow, let yeah. alone some of those places. Like you can't just carry a gun around Australia, right? Like not going to happen. England, you don't just like go go get your gun. Like they've got to be kept certain places. Like, and, and as I traveled, I recognized the fact of this is a very delicate subject, mm. very delicate subject. And, and I think it's important. I wish the, you know, here as a American community, we recognize the fact that we have got to be united. There should not be divides of public land, private land, DIY guy. I go with an outfitter, you know, I only like mm -hmm. high FOC, uh, you know, oh, you shoot an expandable. All these are just petty, petty barriers mm -hmm. that cause divide. They're like, they're cracks and they're cracks. Mm -hmm. And then what's going to happen is eventually these cracks are going to keep going and crossing over and a non-hunting structured and well-organized organization is going to come in and drop a fist on that and it's going to go boom the fissures and it crumbles yep so my whole passion from the very beginning of our brand is how do i deliver hunting education how do i deliver hunting on tv that is tasteful mm -hmm. um happens fa happens fast you know honestly like even on some of my longer shots I've edited those to where they look shorter because I don't want to promote like non-ethical mm. shots. Obviously, thank goodness Traeger came into the hunting community and because everything in the hunting community taught us how to kill. Mm. Nothing taught us how to cook. I was going to ask you about that, where the cooking came in. I had a Traeger right outside. He saw it when he walked yeah. in right out there. Listen, Traeger changed the hunting community. Mm. When Traeger came in and they came, they actually came to me because of a mutual friend that worked with me when I was at Under Armour. Um, that mutual friend came to me and kind of wanted to like, they actually offered to give me a grill, but I'm like, no, I want to pay for it. I want to pay for it. And we got a grill and I cooked for the first time on it. And I was like, this is different. This changed it. And then because I was so passionate about loving the fact that what I was shooting myself was better tasting and my friends liked it. And my family was like, yeah. what are you making next? Well, then knock to fork came because... When are you going to do a cookbook? When am I going to do like an archery book? Like, 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like the hookbook's already there, though. Instagram For posts, sure. take those pictures, take those you know, the descriptions. For sure. Have somebody put together the rough draft, and then you go through and, and change it up a little bit, because it, it seems like you've already written it almost. Yeah, it's every... And the archery book, you've already written all, yeah. as well. It's just yeah. consolidating all those posts, all those old articles, all that stuff, putting it in a, a whatever way you want to present it in a book, and, and, and then, okay, got a rough draft, and now can spend a little time with it, however long is appropriate, get it to where you want it to be, and then... See, this, this circles right back to what you brought up earlier of your problem of like, now I've got to the point where I need someone that's a lead (laughs) on this because I just need to be John. Mm -hmm. Like I need to be, yeah, I need to like shoot something cool and cook it. But if I have to cook it, produce it, make proof the editor that did it. Write Even the, just post it, right? Make sure that it's not, po- dude, yeah. post it, like post it, right? You know, make sure, you know, spell ca- check it correctly, yeah. tag the, you know, it's yeah. like all and that. And then do the story. And so at that point, yeah, I don't have time for a cookbook. Yeah. I don't have time for an archery book. We're, we're as a brand, we're, we're slowly getting to the point where we, we are really recognizing what people really consume from mm. us. And we're trying to structure our team mm-hmm. that puts me in a better position to where I can deliver that information as, as much as possible. Yeah. Because that's what makes me happy too. Like, listen, come to these tack events and watching people shoot and seeing the amount of people I've, I saw shoot that have been shooting less than six months that shot the knock on yeah. course, the hardest technical 3d course that I've ever experienced, and yeah. I've shot thousands of them. On this last one, this was the one you just yeah, did, is the hardest yeah. one you set up. Yeah, I mean, it was tech one probably. Yeah, yeah, but for someone that's shot less than a year yeah. to roll out there, and then they only lose two or three arrows. Nice. That that just shows how how awesome it is when when there's accessible information that is good quality. Mm-hmm. But with that, now there's the gray line of there's a lot of people that want to put information out there because they want to be, you know, the next thing or, Mm. and honestly, they're passionate about it, but there's some people that don't necessarily get it right. They're Mm. regurgitating information and that probably happens obviously in the military field, but probably Mm. in the, in the, in the gun side of things, Mm. right? Probably to where it's just like, you know, they, they try to, maybe they try a new like load. And they're like, oh, this is the next thing. But then Craig Boddington's out there like, I talked about that 20 years ago. And the reason we went away from that was blah, 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 blah. So there's there's kind of like this evolution of of time. And going back to that evolution release. So that release was called the evolution. But then since I started working with two finger releases and like recognizing the increase in accuracy by having less fingers on okay. the tool that releases the arrow. Okay. I made a two finger. I was personally shooting a two finger version and I showed Joe and it was like, it was, he's like, I love how it's silver. Why is it like this? And I go, it's a prototype dude. It hasn't been anodized. And he goes, if you, he goes, I want one of these, but I want it like this. I don't want it colored. I want it like raw. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm like, okay. And then he goes, if you if you like he goes, you should do these. You should do these. And I and he's like, I'm gonna shoot it. This is what I shoot. And I go, and you want them silver? And he goes, hundred percent. I want them silver, non-colored. Like this is the raw start of archery. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to what do you want to name it? And he goes, Call it the silverback. Nice. Of course. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? 
that name was actually already registered by another company in our Mm -hmm. industry. And I personally called him. I called the owner and I said, you know, hey, man, I know you own this name and you're not currently using it, but I have a, you know, can I use the name? And I explained the why and I explained like what it was and how I was going to coach people and, and kind of how it all tied together. And he's just like, you know what, you're going to do good with that. We'll give you the name. That's awesome. And so another release company gave me the name. No kidding. Yep. Gave me the name. And this is also why it's so critical that we don't burn bridges within our industry. And that's one of the hard things about right now, me being in my position of, I've been on the manufacturing side of the fence mm-hmm. and I've been on the ambassador side of the fence. There's a lot of things that man, that manufacturers do that are because they need to promote their company and keep their employees working and all that stuff. But there's also some, some things that ambassadors do and they don't recognize that it's actually hurtful to the manufacturer. Mm. And it's because they've never been on the other side of the, of the globe. You know, they've yeah. never looked at it from two okay. directions. Yeah. So it's like one way glass, uh. you know, they're like, okay, they can promote me because I want to be this. When the reality is no, they're promoting you to promote them. Mm-hmm. So you actually need to go to the other side of that and say, how do I promote them so much in a positive way that they promote me more mm-hmm. instead of just like, you need to promote me more. So, you know, I've, I've seen it from both ways. And I think that in the industry, that's why as a brand, like in that instance, I went forward and hadn't burned a bridge and it was mm. absolutely, this is going to be good for industry. Love the direction of that. Take it and run with it. That's awesome. And I, and I, I, I really, and honestly, like, I still communicate with Matthews. I still communicate with Hoyt. But you know what? Three years ago, PSE came forward and said, we love what you're doing. We want to like go in all in. And I became a free agent, you know, and everybody kind of knew that that was, you know, I, my long-term contract was coming, coming up. And truthfully, what I tried to do three years ago was I tried to get all the bow manufacturers to come to support me at a lower level so that I could actually work for all of them. Yeah. But the industry wasn't ready for that yet. And I'm not so sure that that's not going to come around Mm -hmm. like at some point. However, PSE also came forward very aggressively and said, listen, we want to give you the ability to like make your own bows. And we want to give you an engineer, let you make your own bows. You can be part of like how you market that thing. Mm-hmm. We'll be totally hands off. We're just literally giving you the ability to be a, to like be a bow manufacturer and give you the tools. And that was a awesome partnership because that was the one side of my whole archery like life yeah, do you want that, that I had. Yeah. Because I worked under Matt McPherson and Zach Kurtzall, who was the, you know, first called me. He was an engineer at Hoyt. Darren Cooper were, they were both engineers at Hoyt. So I got to, I was communicating with engineers all the time throughout my whole like timeline. Mm -hmm. I've been in design, I've been in R and D and I've been in marketing. So, but I'd never done it for myself. I didn't want to just put my name on a bow that was like Like our model. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to just make a John Dudley signature bow. Right. Like I actually wanted like, Hey, like you I want to make what yeah. I want to shoot, and, right. and and which is 
so that knock to it right there. Yeah, right here. Okay, so that knock to it is actually based on a release called a wise choice, which me and Jerry worked on together, which was taking one of his most popular releases at the time, a just cause that did not have an auto closing jaw. Mm. And I'm like, I need a handheld release so that I can, as a hunter, clip on a string and, yep. it, and it stays on there. Okay. But I also, even even in early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, I shot releases with only two fingers. So um, I would be shooting this release that no one could get because Jerry made me like some for myself. Mm -hmm. And Sharon, who had started the whole product side of knock on because she's like listen your emails all these emails and people reaching out through dudleyarchery.info and knock on you know com they're just at saying like why does john shoot this and why does john shoot that she's like you need to explain that so i told jerry i'm like can we make some two-finger releases and he said we at the time i think it was 85 was it 85 i think you know, he's like, we've only ever sold 85 two finger releases in the history of our company. And so he kind of said like, if I'm going to make that and we're going to shut down tooling and everything mm. to do it, you're going to have to literally pre buy more than we've ever done. And so Sharon's like, do it, do it and tell people why you shoot it. And so we like wrote this check, which was huge for mm. us. And we bought all the first product and I literally did a, a Facebook live and I'm like, Hey, you've been asking about this thing and why I shoot it. Here it is. We're going to offer this. And, and so the knock to it was based on my way of coaching, mm -hmm. but they were never available. And then I love because I, because I described the why that's why that happened. But, but then also the next thing was like, okay, well, why do you use an evolution sometimes? And I'm like, okay, well, this this tool teaches you the, right. the dynamics of a release. But this thing gives you the ability to to control your own dynamics, yeah. the knock to it, right? So, um, and then the wrist strap shooters were like, we want to cure target panic, mm -hmm. but with our index finger. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we ended up coming out with a back strap, which is a... a a wrist strap version of a silverback. I saw that. It was like a year ago. Is that one? Yeah, it was like a year and a half ago. And so, you know, what I tell people is this. When they're, like, trying to figure out, like, you're trying to figure out which release would I really use, I tell people the reason why some people that shoot an index finger release and struggle with target panic and anticipation when they switch over to a handheld release, the reason why all of a sudden it's a reset mentally or if you go from like if you have like thumb anticipation you go to a silverback where the thumb is only a safety mm -hmm. and you have to let off and pull through what i tell people is you, you know each of your fingers are like kids they're all from the same family but this thing from has you come out of the womb and you're picking book this thing's pick <laughs> it flick it yeah poke it you know pry it out like this thing is a flicker and a hitter that's mm. what your index finger is this your thumb has always been taught to hold on to stabilize mm. to control yep. to be patient so your thumb can like address a trigger and also have the patience your thumb has patience 
your index finger. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so by changing to a different finger, some people can completely reset a poor habit yeah. because now it's like you've brought in a whole new coach or a whole new personality. Yeah. So a lot of our products are like that. And, you know, Sharon started knock on literally in our garage with a rack and, you know, people would write in and say, John's given all these free articles and he came and coached and he came and did this seminar and how do we support him? You know, is there any, is this the first product then? No, the first product was like three shirts and a hat. Okay. Yep. And then, um, well, that probably was the first like actual tool. Yeah. All right. But there were hats and t-shirts. Yeah. That that was, that was the first tool, you know, and then, and then it just kept going by category, you know, and then eventually, you know, here comes PSE giving me the ability to, to bring out bows, which the first bow I just wanted a bulletproof aluminum design that just shot really well. I made the brace height super forgiving to where when people shot it, it was smooth, it was quiet, and they they were yeah. actually accurate because the, the arrow wasn't, like, on the string very long. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, it was just a very forgiving bow the way it was put together. Well, then for the next project, immediately what I wanted to do was I really wanted to offer a bow that had an unbelievable, like, bang for the buck yeah so going from a high-end aluminum model the next thing i did was go right to the like mm-hmm. to the you know this is this can get people into archery yeah. the first bow the ntn was named after the nation so our community was so supportive and i always felt weird calling them fans and i kind of told sharon i feel weird saying fan just fan seems weird or follower seems weird because that's not what I think when they come up to me yeah. and she goes, no, they're, they're our community. We're mm-hmm. like a nation. It's a yeah, knock, on, knock nation. on nation. And that's how the knock on nation flag started with the nice. knocks, you know, Hashtag knock on stars. nation. Yeah. So then it became a community. So that first bow, the NTN mm-hmm. is just an abbreviation for nation. Nice. And, and then the next one, the embark, was based on i just want people to embark on the archery path so how can they get into archery for an affordable price but have something that has all the tools to still be a really good shooting model and that was the embark well then the next one was like now that i've done what everyone's expecting me to do i want to make the most expensive bow ever made like no limitations to materials no limitations to how long each one takes okay I literally went backwards. I said, yeah. how can I make the most awesome shooting thing but if there's no limitations? And then let's figure out what that costs. And whatever it costs, let's just price it according to how we have to price it. Yeah. And there's just not going to be that many of them. But yeah. I told him, I'm like, my personal passion is to make the highest in both. So then when the Levitate came out okay. and that new cam system, which... I had shot the PSE bows for two years at that point. I knew what I wanted to do different to the cam, mm. to the cam, to kind of put together what I loved about all of the places I had been mm-hmm. to something that was just really comfortable and super accurate. And so the Levitate came out. And my goal for the Levitate always was I'm like, I want to make a bow to where when I pull this thing out of a box on a scale, they're going to see the number and they're going to assume that's just the weight of the bow. Okay. And as it comes out of the box, that thing is going to have a sight on it, a rest on it, and a stabilizer on it. And it's going to be the same weight 
as the competitors with that. just a naked bow. Yeah. And the and the accuracy, you know, so then the levitate comes out and ends up winning like bow of the year, right? Nice. Yeah. So so then, you know, for me, I feel like that whole like creative hunger that I had, yeah. I feel like PSE is the people that gave me the ability to like quench that hunger nice. of like actually being able to just bring a bow forward the yeah. way that I did with that release or, you know, yeah. some of the other products that we work on. So awesome. You know, Pete came to my, Pete Shepley came to my uh, book signing in Phoenix. I saw that. Time. Front row. It was awesome. I got up there in the front. I looked down and there. He was right there. PSE shirt on the whole deal, you know, legend in the front row. That was yeah. really, that was super cool of him to, to show up. See my first bow that I ever bought was a PSE. Oh, no way. Yeah. And it was at the Gander mountain, outlet in Wilmot, no, Wisconsin. Kidding. But yeah, my first one that I ever bought for myself was a PSE. So oh, that's, that's cool. kind of what was cool. You know, I did like a decade at Matthews, a decade at Hoyt, um, which at Hoyt, I wasn't internal PSE. I'm not internal, but I'm like, for me, I feel like I'm coming full circle. Like I don't feel like I'm jumping brands because yeah. each brand has been there. And the same was true with Under Armour, you know, Under Armour, was a was a very important place for me to like mm. to be honestly during the time because they looked at the hunting community in a different light like kip loved my athleticism he loved that i worked out and he loved that i taught honestly that was like a real like i felt like i was banging my head against the wall and mm. like real tree or mossy oak trying to like get a camo sponsor when all they wanted was like a Realtree road trips type show. They mm -hmm. wanted to, people on the outdoor channel. Like that was just their focus mm -hmm. or a writer, you know, Bill Winky or whatever. So, you know, it was not, at the time Under Armour gave me a, a really awesome, like stress-free ability to just do what I was doing. And they were kind of, honestly, they, I don't even know if they really like paid attention. Cause I wasn't like, you know, I was just kind of doing something different. Yeah. And then honestly, when I met, Jonathan Hart and Barklow, mm -hmm. you know, through, through you and Andy, because you were, you were like a key part of talking with Jonathan Hart about like your experience with me. Cause Jonathan hadn't experienced with me. And then Andy introduced me to Barklow. And then when, and then Barklow's like, I'm already consuming his content, dude. Like he'll come over and we can talk and shoot. And Andy's like, yeah, let's do it. And so then, obviously, when the three of us got together, I was like, sick of match, sick as matching my DNA yeah, because yeah. you know my friendship and my unity is with Barklow, yeah. and he does a good job of explaining the why. And mm -hmm. when I can hear the why, then I'm better at being a coach and doing yeah. what we do as a brand, which is educate people on the why like every product has a why yep. so i try to be transparent about that and you know i know listen i can shoot i can have easton make me whatever i want i could honestly i could call pse and have him make me whatever i want same thing with jerry carter i mean i've got thousands of prototype releases that i've gone mm. over through my life i shoot what allows me to come here and put on the best performance I can in front mm -hmm. of people and it, and, and also what makes me be the most successful in the woods. So what you see me shooting, that's what I choose to shoot based on my accuracy. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't settle for products and I certainly, you know, I certainly don't ignore like new fads and things like that. It's just, 
there's probably a good chance I've already gone through that testing yeah. route with honestly some of the legends of our industry. Like, do you think I haven't seen vein testing mm. and helical testing and FOC testing when I've been with Easton mm. for 25 years? Do you think I haven't like, do you think I don't know about a bow tune and being able to put a half inch shorter cable on something? Or, I mean, I've seen thousands of bows that Matt McPherson would literally prototype, build, give yeah. to me. I would have to go shoot. I would plot the accuracy. I would give feedback on that. And he would instantly make an engineer, an engineering change yeah. so that the tune was like, you know, it's literally my entire life has been archery and, every single thing that I do is to try to help people learn archery, get good at it easier. Like, you know, I'm not, not using something because I don't like that brand. Yeah. I'm just, I'm sticking to what I know makes me the most accurate on paper because that's really my lit. That's the litmus test of where I'm at yeah. as a person is I feel like I can deliver good information when I'm on point as you know, who I am or as an athlete. And that's everything I use is based on that and speak. We've been crushing it, my friend. Time to get back training in case I get a field this fall, as I've been doing a lot more writing than I've been doing working out lately, which is why I was so fired up for this care package from First Form. I tried the protein meat sticks right away and absolutely love them. Protein meat sticks from First Form are similar to protein bars as far as benefits. First Form Protein Meat Sticks are a delicious and very convenient way to get more protein throughout the day. Protein is essential to any health or fitness goal. No other meat stick like it on the market, packed with a full 20 grams of protein in each stick and only 200 calories or less total. It comes in five incredible flavors, original smokehouse, seasoned barbecue, Cajun style, jalapeno heat, and breakfast sausage. Great for a snack at the office, in the car, on a hike, or anywhere you're on the go. Check them out. I've also been drinking the Opti Greens 50 from First Form. Opti Greens 50 is a precisely formulated greens superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. 50 hand-chosen ingredients in precise and effective amounts with non-GMO and non-synthetic superfoods that provide a well-rounded blend of vitamins plus antioxidant packed ingredients for overall immune health support and defense against toxins in the air and in the foods we eat to keep us as healthy as possible all year long. Go to firstform.com slash Jack Carr. That's the number one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash Jack Carr to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. Once again, that's firstform.com slash Jack Carr. So when people ask me, you know, they ask me about archery or whatever, and I always direct them to you and your website, of course, because there's no, I mean, there's no better place to, to go. Thank you for that. Um, of course. And, uh, and so it's so cool to see people who get introduced to archery just like that. Just say random reach out. Sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't. And then to see them go to your website and then all of a sudden they're doing these, they're going to classes, they're building built making their own arrow building but like they're that go all in on it it's so really cool to see but but also what i tell people is you know and they're like what kind of bow should i get you probably mm -hmm. what kind of bow should i get yeah um and 
for me, I, go, I, I always love to support those local archery shops because I have such great memories of being in those kind of shops as a kid and looking at whether it was posters or targets or the taxidermy or, or whatever else. And it's the life I just blood, love yeah. that. And so I always say, kind of like with independent bookstores, you're like, where can I get your book? Well, you can get it anywhere, but you know, try to, I try to support independent bookstores, local bookstores as yeah. much as I possibly can. So, so please, you know, get it there. Um, but I say, hey, go to that that shop, talk to the guys there, shoot a bunch of different things, and maybe let them know if you have a budget and yep. you know what that is, and hey, what what's the best? What what can I get for this amount? This is what I have to spend, and then they can give you a few options. Shoot those few options, and and use what you what feels the best type yeah. of a thing. But spend some some time in there doing that. So that's typically you know what I tell people, and uh, like your relationship with with Hoyt, they're right down the street here. Obviously, um, if people go to the uh, Rambo. For First Blood Part Two novelization, and a novelization is a book written off a screenplay for something very very popular in the uh, in the eighties and, and into the nineties. But uh, in the beginning, there David Morrell, who created Rambo with with First Blood back in nineteen seventy two, has a little paragraph or two, and he talks about the knife, like Jimmy Lyle knife, mm-hmm. and then he talks about Hoyt. For the for the for yep. the bow and for the Hoyt Rambo and uh, it's so cool yeah. yeah he does it in uh, and I think in the novelization of Rambo three it's in the front there as well so um, so I was very you know tuned into Hoyt early on because of that I'm like mm-hmm. oh my gosh Rambo shooting this thing amazing um, but uh, primarily shot bears and I think most archery they're all, all their high end bows are also good now it's oh, amazing yeah, yeah it's so cool yeah there's there's several brands you know that are. I think what's happened is a lot of the companies have had really good innovations and patents and as they go forward they they have to license you know they license that and they might want some technology that another company like over uh-huh. the last two two decades yeah. each company has came out with like one or two little nuggets that uh-huh. now every bow has okay. and so there's a lot of like there's a lot of patent swapping because like this company who owns a patent on this type of take up on a cam, they need to have this type of limb pocket. So like there's, how does that, do they license it then? What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, the best case scenario is that you've got something they want to where you just like make an even swap. Like, Uh Hey, we're going to redo that, you know, a split limb, you know, Mm -hmm. that'd be one, you know? Um, you know, like, let's say everyone all of a sudden decided they needed a bridge in the back of the riser. Like, Hoyt's going to be like, okay, well, that tech riser. But obviously, a lot of them are, like, exchanging certain patents mm-hmm. now. And and I think the other thing, too, is a lot of the engineers are now understanding the whys of the original innovators of archery. Mm-hmm. And so there's, like, engineers coming in that have degrees and like you know how to make efficiency of a you know of a wheel and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so there's been a lot of things that have come forward and and now we're actually almost at the point of terminal velocity Mm. like our efficiency is theoretically it's and mathematically the can the efficiency of cam systems as we have now they're almost like plateaued Uh. the only way we can get more out of them it's all give or take it's Mm. like Okay, if you want more speed, you can have it, but you need to have more power stroke on the string. So this mm. model will have less brace height, or you know, it's it's always give or take. Okay. You know, some they like one company might come out with a new new bow and they say it's four feet per second faster. However, 
their string now has two two less strands in it and they haven't told you that so they're uh, they're literally gaining speed by like okay. taking weight you know it's like give or take they're they're okay. literally like figuring out a way to like market it. i know in the gun industry looking it's like that too you know um there's just small little nuances like speed is physics right so and and a system that's launching a projectile mm-hmm. also physics so there comes a point where it's like we can only throw this things like this You're catapult right. can only throw this rock that right. far unless the catapult now has a lever arm that's right. four times longer or it's more powerful the spring to cock the thing uh-huh. or the you know the thing that like throws the rock out of the the right. bucket is less weight so that you can actually you know uh-huh. throw it, you know so it's it's give or take a lot of that now but there's a lot of brands that are basing what they're doing on things that people like in the market and they're doing their best to not overstep each other's technologies right. and marketing campaigns um which is cool though because yeah. here here's the thing like and it's why I, even though i love my pse I sh- like my bow shot i shot amazing this whole year i mean for me to be at the age that i am 47 and shoot the way i did and last hunting season was like off the charts for me too I've definitely had the best, I've had the best 12 months of my life with, with my levitate. Um, but in saying that not everyone can get a levitate because guess what? One, they can't make enough. Mm. Like they're maxed out right now. The waiting list is long. They're like, they're maxed out, but some towns have two good dealers and dealer a might have the exclusive rights to Matthews and mm-hmm. Hoyt and dealer B might have the exclusive. They can't get Matthews or Hoyt. So guess what? They get PSE and they get a Botech or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those archery shops have to compete against each other, not because they want to, the manufacturers really put them in that position because the manufacturers are trying to protect them uh. with margin and, oversaturating your product you know it's not like you can have a car dealership on every corner right because you just start robbing peter to pay paul so some of these archery shops have brand a and b because the town the shop across town has c and d Mm. and honestly that's important like we need to have multiple brands that are good because I don't want the shop that's can only get C and D because he started. Caleb's a great example, mm-hmm. right down in Arizona. Caleb Brewer, he'll be here tomorrow. Oh, will he? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like Caleb's a perfect example. He came in, bought a shop, right? Yeah, he bought a shop that also had great brands, um, but I can guarantee you, he had to sell himself to those brands because it's not like it's a franchise where just because you sell your dealership means you get a Chevy or a Ford like that you can just buy and sell. He had to pretty much say, you know, this is the commitment I'll do. This is how many numbers I'll do Uh for like, you know, he's making those things. So like for honestly, all the companies we've talked about, they have protected areas for their dealers. So there'll be like a circle drawn. You look at population and then you really have to pick out what, how many shops can this density have Mm -hmm. And sometimes both good shops are right next to each other. And that's unfortunate because 
even though both of those shops could probably sell all four or five brands and uh-huh. do a good job with all of them, they also just the manufacturers give people protected areas. Oh. And yeah, so sometimes you have great shops that can't get certain products. Interesting. So they've got to sell another. Um, but, you know, again, it's forced the industry to have good products overall. You know, there's a there's a lot of good bows. Yeah. But there's also, there's all, like with that price tag, there's also bows that don't cut any corners, whether it's on the craftsmanship, whether it's on the material, whether it's on the process, you you kind of get what you pay for. Yeah. And, and they're on the high end of archery. Like a good shooter can could shoot all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good shooter, they all have their feel for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure with you shooting guns, uh-huh. uh, you know that, you yeah. know, like, you know, and I, I don't like you I'm could not, tell the difference between all these. Like we have here, I, I think we have Bose from most of the manufacturers uh, yeah. around yeah, there's here. There's quite a few in here. Uh, <laughs> just yeah. in here. There's, there's so you saw the ones on the mantle feel inside. Like there's more there's... in here than there is in my area, oh, man. I'm, man. I'm like better at like, if I'm not <laughs> using it, putting it in someone's hands at will. Yeah. Thing. I like, I, I, I like to have options. Yeah. And my idea, a lot of this was also, I wanted to help out Caleb as he was starting a shop. So I'm like, Hey, I want to be your first bow. I want to help you. You know, yeah. I just called him right away. And, uh, so that was, that was one of those. Um, and then of course something else happens and I want another one and whatever, but I also wanted to have them strategically placed around the house. So you saw the 3d yeah. target so I can go downstairs and not have to be like, Oh, I got to run up to my office to grab the, grab the bow. I just want to be able to snag one, walk outside and, and, uh, and, and launch some arrows and come back in and keep doing whatever I'm doing. And, uh, so they're strategically placed around here as well for, for that reason, but they're all great, but obviously I'm not, I'm not near, uh, never be the near the level that you are. Well, you'll be able to really tell the differences between all these things and be able to tell, like, I just know there's some differences, but I don't really couldn't tell you, I can't articulate oh, yeah. what they are. And these are all really nice bows and they yeah. all feel great, great to me. Really good archers are, they're kind of a human form of mm-hmm. what's called an instron machi- machine an instron pull like it pulls the bow and it's literally plotting every single poundage change per drawing uh, and okay. it, that's what builds a draw curve and so like when i pull a cam back you know the way that that poundage stacks and plateaus and drops off and then you know that's that's called the power curve. I can like feel that, you know, a lot of times I can pull it back and be like, Oh, that, well, that's for sure a Matthews and that mm-hmm. feels like a Hoyt. And, uh, nice. and honestly, like for me, the cam system I've shot better than anything ever, ever is my PSE cam system. Nice. Is and like, there are three of them right now? Those three you talked about, those are the three. I have four. You I have came four. out with the Unite, which is like an upgraded version of the NTN. Okay. The Unite is, uh, is kind of a, a high end aluminum model that, came out this year okay. with PSE. So you have four with yep, them right four, now that you've worked four. on. That's awesome. Yeah. That's like, is that one a year or is it less? It's more it's than been, that. It's been, yeah. I feel like you writing books. Like yeah. I, I honestly kind of thought it'd be fun to do a bow. And then I was passionate about the price point yeah. bow for, for the people with the embark. Um, but yeah, it's been, we've done four bows with PSE um, in three and a half years, which yeah. Probably pretty good, I'd especially so. since I'm not like technically a bow engineer. It's just that's all I've done my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's uh, what's going forward? What are you doing? What, is there another bow on the horizon you want to do? Or you do you think that hey, those four options cover 
a lot of archers or what do you, what there do you think? There were some other options, but I think, um, I don't know. It, it really comes down to what our company's plan is moving mm. forward. Um, and it comes down to time, mm. you know, with, with a bow design and a bow launch comes down to time and I'm shooting my levitate so good that I kind of don't want to change too. Yeah. Um, is it the I'm, white one? Is, is it, is, is that, is that one of a one? Yeah, I have the two that like have been awesome was this white one that they built me. Uh-huh. Um, and, and is that then, a one of one or can people, is that an option for people? Well, I just, I kind of keep telling people to just send a message into PSE and ask them for it. So okay. I think I've forced them. I've forced the custom shop to offer it now. Okay. So people just got to like wait the, you know, for a custom color time and pay an upcharge, but it is available. Okay. Um, but then I had my one for my whole hunting season where everyone was like, what camo is that on there? Well, I had a, like a desert tan, desert okay. sand colored one, but it kind of looked flat and I kind of wanted it to look a little different, to be honest with uh-huh. you. Uh, and I wanted to kind of like, just like with a sniper rifle, I kind of wanted to break up the outline a little mm-hmm. bit. So everyone wants to know like where the stenciling on my bow came from. It's, um, and you probably got one. Do you ever get gifts from Leupold? Uh, I have a few. Did yeah. you get the, the the Christmas box where it had the little uh, no. the little bourbon shot glass? Oh no, the eyepiece shot glass. Okay, it was it was the eyepiece made into a little shot glass. It had like a little single thing of bullet bourbon, and it had a, a Christmas ornament that was elk antlers. Oh, nice. So I took I took that Christmas ornament and I cut out the center of a paper plate and taped it on there. And I used that to like spray paint the black elk antlers on my tan levitate. So nice. Like the custom, yeah, yeah. When everyone says like, what, yep. what was that custom paint job? It was literally a Christmas tree ornament. That's, from, from I can see how that would work yeah. perfectly. Cause okay. there, there was those gosh, who, who made it? There was that, that, you know, you could buy it four maybe four or five different really small cans of camo paint and it had a a A couple leaves yeah like a plastic fern and uh like two of them or something like that so you could kind of put them together and you know change your angles and just over the top so we use that for a lot of our sniper weapon systems early on in the in the teams Uh, and now of course you can buy a stock that has all sorts of different just like we can with the bow all those different kind of but you couldn't always do that there wasn't always all these different camouflage patterns that you could use but that but you did the same thing and i can totally (laughs) in my mind picture a christmas ornament and it was and picture fun. you doing that but because yeah here's we, the loophole right here so yeah. this is i like this one which one is this this is the rx 2800 tbrw yeah so that hunter. thing's good for for rifle and archery yeah. both yeah i like yeah. this thing and they're such an awesome a couple years old though here. they're yeah. they're really good people is it is this uh is there another one? Is this one's a couple years old now? The is full, there a new? Well, the archery specific one is yeah. the full draw. There's okay. a full draw five. Okay. Um, which what's cool about that is it actually has the trigonometry built into it to where when mm-hmm. you set up your rangefinder, you pretty much put your eye like the distance from your peep to to your arrow shaft, your peep height, the distance from your peep to your front sight, and then your ballistics, like your arrow weight and your speed. And so then that trigonometry gets put into your rangefinder to where there's a feature in there nice. that when you range something, if anything in that laser's field would impair the arc of your arrow, mm-hmm. it'll flag it and it'll oh, nice. draw like a line. And oh, it also wow. factors in all the trigonometry for distance or for elevation, incline, decline, you know, because 
you have to subtract yardage when you're okay. shooting on angles. So it'll factor in, you know, mm. the degree of angle, um, the distance, mm. obviously what the percentage of cut is, and then it'll, you know, you can range and it'll tell you with a bow, shoot it for this. Right. And then the second number that'll pop up is like what the line of sight is, uh-huh. but not, you know, the, tr- the trick, right. what you shoot it for type thing. Yep. Nice. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order one of those later today. Get yeah. one. Full draw five. <laughs> Full it's draw le- five. Yeah, I'm getting it's it. legit. Nice. It's legit. I'm getting that for sure. And uh, I also want to ask you out before you go, the workout regimen has changed over the last, what, year, year and a half. Yeah. And, uh, so what are you doing these days? So, um, Two Februarys ago, it was actually right before the adaptive shoot um, down in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Um, I was with uh, Clancy. You've met Clancy, right? Um, I was with Clancy, and I kind of told him, I want to – there's certain times in my life where I really want a training regimen because I feel like when my schedule is chaotic, I want discipline on – you know, I'm going to, I'm doing this with my diet. I'm doing this with my workout. Like I, I like a training regimen, just like when you start playing football, you know, you start practice in football. Mm-hmm. It's like you have three a days, then you have two a days. And then this is what your practice week's like. Cause you have game day. And I kind of do that same thing. I wanted to have my diet clean, my physical body clean. I wanted to start training and really shooting because my first tack was going to be in February or in April that year. Mm-hmm. So on like the end of January, February 1st, I was talking to him about this and I said, I, you know, I'm thinking about trying like carnivore diet or something. And Clancy's like, dude, honestly, I've tried them all. And he goes, I feel like your body. Cause he asked, he asked me what, like what the reason was. And I said, sometimes I feel like I don't digest food that well Mm. like you know i feel like i'm bloated i feel like i'm holding weight and i definitely had you know what i thought was some arthritis starting in my hands Mm. and in my shoulders which is wear and tear naturally and he goes dude try keto he's like i've tried them all but he's like my body responded to keto Mm. like big time and i told him that i really like eating fresh vegetables and stuff and so I just told, I'm like, well, what do I do? And he kind of went through some like super simple basics of like, Hey, you know, I had these strips. I actually ended up talking to Peter Tia, who, mm. you, you know, Peter, right? I don't know. Have you not met Dr. Mm-hmm. Peter Tia? Nope. I'm surprised by that. Um, so Peter told me that to get like a keto sense, like electric blood tester, I got that. And then Clancy gave me like two things that he would eat for breakfast that were keto friendly two things he'd eat for lunch and two things he'd eat for dinner. And he's like, these are two things I would eat. And I just said, give me those and I'll do the same thing for a month. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, I can totally do that. Yeah. And then, uh, Sharon ended up buying me this, like, it was pretty much a magazine booklet. It was like a keto, like a keto guide. She okay. got it at Barnes and Noble and it was just like a magazine. So I just read like how to start keto really, you know, cutting sugar, cutting carbs. That's if you really want to simplify it, that's what it is. You're reading labels. If it's got sugar in there, you you don't, if it's got carbs in there, you don't eat it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's like, I'm down 55 pounds. Um, you're down. I'm 50. Yeah. 55 pounds. Yeah. I would not have thought 198 right now, right. Sitting right here. And I've lost zero strength from what I was at. Yeah. You know, so and I've got like, I feel like I've got more gas in my tank. I feel like I'm actually shooting the same as when I was in my late teens mm. and, you know, early twenties. Like, I feel like I have that. I feel like I have more flexibility. Um, 
I sleep better. My energy levels like hundred percent sustainable through the days. Like, um, for example, I came here not because I wanted to, but just because of schedule. We flew in Tuesday, um, had a really cool day with Evan, uh, had a good dinner, but then Wednesday I, uh, went to the tack. We set up like my whole team, we set up, I like checked our course. Then I had an appearance at badass archery down, down in town. So I, I like barely made it there with like two minutes to spare and it was packed. Nice. I mean, it was, there were people everywhere and it was just a lot of people. I never had time to eat. Then by the time we got back and tax starting the next day, we drove all the way back up to solitude, mm-hmm. got to the B and B nothing's open. It's on a Wednesday, nothing's open. So I couldn't eat, got up in the morning, went to the course, started at, at, at five forty-five AM went up with Michael Shea to do some content for free range American, got to my target by 8 AM. And then here comes, you know, 10, you 10 hours of people come through. Then I go down to the booth, get to the booth at five o'clock. And then I'm in the booth from five o'clock until shutdown. And then before I knew it, we went to, to dinner and I had fasted like 47 hours. Oh, didn't man. even, didn't even bleep. Like didn't even after bleep. that, that, uh, when you're doing that, that finishing in the booth, after that, do you do, or is it part of the booth where you do the, the Yeti shoot? Like those, isn't there like a competition, something at the end of the day? No, I stay on the Yeti target for the whole day. And okay. Sh- see, what I do is I shoot with every single person that signs up for our range. Wow. Um, some, awesome. da- some days I can't be there depending on commitments or if I'm doing something in a different part of the village. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm very interactive. Now, there has been times where we've had like, contests on yeah I think at the end of the day there it was depends something. on the venue some yeah. venues can't support a range so maybe i'm uh, on like a novelty shot or something but even in the even hunting last year hunting i mean if i had if i had beef jerky baby bells and like mixed nuts in my uh-huh. backpack you're good dude i was good and so i've changed you know i i like barclow noticed barclow went keto Did he? so Barklow and I were at the Pope and Young convention. I was a keynote speaker and Barklow spoke as well. And he was just like, dude, this is at that point, 14 months. He's like, so you're in. I'm like, I'm totally in. When did he start it? Because I saw him and uh, I spent a whole day with him at Sitka and Bozeman, uh, end of April, I think. Yeah. So So that's right when he started it. So, you know, how much is Barklow? Barklow's down 40, dude. You won't even recognize him. Oh, really? Yeah, you wouldn't even recognize him. I'm going to text him right when we're yeah, done here. I was going to send a, me a pic. He's a lean machine, dude. Um, and he loves it. And he told me, he's like, like this suits like his whole narrative. Mm. Like, honestly, I told him, like, hey, dude, a lot of the stuff you teach people to survive, I bet you there's people that can't survive without sugar for three days. Like, that's going to be a bigger ailment than, like, altitude sickness to mm. some people. So now that he's cleaned up, he's like, I'm actually more of a survivalist on keto hmm. than being dependent on crappy carbs and crappy sugar. Interesting. So my inflammation's all gone. My sleep's better. My stomach's always flat. Digestion has like been way better. And actually I saw Rogan, uh, in the end of April. Mm-hmm. And when he saw me, it was just like, Holy cow, dude. Yeah. And he's like, I could just never do keto because I didn't feel like I had gas in the tank. I'm like, yeah. you have to, it's not just do it for a month. You've got to power through. Like I said, you can be in ketosis in a few days and you can see results of being keto in a month. Uh-huh. I'm like, but I don't think your body fully switches over uh-huh. to like the efficiency of processing through, you know, fats. Interesting. Um, and so 
actually Joe called me, I think it was on like maybe Monday on uh-huh. our way here. And he told me, he's like, dude, I went, he's, he's modified a little bit. So he's kind of like, um, he's more or less keto right now. And he's like, I'm two months in. And he said, dude, he's like, my workouts are becoming like a machine. He's really? Like, he's like, it took a while for me to convert over, but he's like, I really like it. And I said, yeah, man, like I'm not, I don't have any reason to change back. I'm not mm. like penalizing myself being mm-hmm. on keto because I feel like I'm as sharp as ever right now, you know, and it, it helps. It's helping me be creative too. It really yeah. is. Oh man, you're talking me into this. I don't know. That's all. I, I didn't do something. Yeah. For me, it's all writing, you know, it's go, go, go all the time. Like you guys, it's, that was, yeah. um, it, it's really cool seeing you guys and how hard you work. It is so evident how hard you work continuing to build on this foundation that you created and, and keep going, keep going. But that doesn't mean that you're like in this marathon, it's a marathon, but you're still in the sprint pace. It seems mm-hmm. from the outside looking in. And I feel like I'm kind of in that same thing, but except without the workouts and the eating right, um, because there's so much writing to do. There's so, there's just so many things uh, on the plate right now, but eventually, uh, and sooner, probably rather than later, I'm going to need to start adding the diet and the workouts back in. Um, because I think I pushed it about as far as I can. Uh, (laughs) it's, it's anyway, it's about, it's about time. So, um, so probably look into it. Our friend network, like I was having this discussion with someone, our friend network, we don't, we can't afford to like put a cruise control on because nope. it's like, I look at you, I know you're like, I get a new red box in the mail and I'm like, <laughs> dang it. He didn't like, t- like he's still f- freaking going, you know, Reese is like going full throttle. Mm-hmm. Then I look at Andy, you know, Andy already was going full throttle with cleared hot. Now he's ironclad, mm-hmm. you know, that whole change thing, agents. Yeah. yeah. Change agents is freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a whole new thing. I mean, it's like, we see Jocko, we mm-hmm. see Evan Hafer, like yeah. none of our friends craft, around like us are giving us any type <laughs> of security to coast. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, when, when I'm at the tack, I tell people, I'm like, I'm, I'm not walking on a slow pace. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make it to the next place mm-hmm. fast because I've already got something else I've got to do. Yeah. And that's, and that's how it is. All the things I want to do. The only reason I'm, I haven't done them is because I don't have the time. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. Right. Like I'm not, gotta prioritize. I'm not turning off. Yeah. I mean, our, our network of friends, we're freaking hustlers and <laughs> we are willing to put in the effort. Like it's not going to be from lack of, you know oh yeah no one's gonna outwork yeah yeah it's not like none of us have got a cool platform regardless of what little diversity we're in Mm -hmm. every one of us grind every single day we grind it out and you know nothing comes easy you know just because you do a book doesn't mean you can't like you've got to go hit every one of those book those little stores and still relate to the grassroots and and i mean there it's a never quit you got to be on point yep but go, we're, go, go. we're fortunate. I mean, we're oh, yeah. fortunate. Oh. We we've surrounded ourselves with greatness, and honestly, I feel like that community. We're all feeding off each other for work ethic. Yeah, and it's, and each one of those people you mentioned has found their passion. Yep. So they and then they found the way to to put this passion and this mission together, giving them purpose and all this going and. Jocko leadership, you archery, Evan, coffee, Glover, survival, um, you know, me writing. It's just, it's just go, go, go away. But the common thing yeah. is that we found this passion and we found a way to make this passion our life. Um, and, uh, which gives us all purpose, we'll which go is kind of cool. Like, you know, the common denominator for us 
is hunting. Mm, yeah. Dude, Primal. Our our whole network, like when we yeah. looked back to that one event we did and we were all there yeah. in the limp, like every one of us, our, our common denominator when we all get together and we start talking about what's going on, honestly, it comes down to like archery and mm-hmm. bow hunting. Yeah. Primal. But then every everything else goes out from that to different directions. So it's, I mean, it's unbelievable to me that this path of archery has like put me where I'm at and, mm-hmm. and surrounded me with the friendships that I have. And it's based on honestly, what's truest to my heart, which is hunting. Yeah. You know, that's what it, I tell people. I'm a target archer to be a better bow hunter and I'm a better bow hunter because I was mm-hmm. a target archer. But the nucleus of that was the primal instinct of hunting and that right. community and, you know, a yeah. fire and, yeah. you know, blood and meat and yep. There's nothing more primal work. than that. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a connection that we all, and it's actually a connection that all of us as, uh, as humans across the globe have, whether we know it or not. Yeah. Cause they're only here. Everyone is only here because we had some ancestors <laughs> that were good at the hunting and the fighting. Yeah. Uh, that's the only reason that we're alive today. Um, so, but some people just don't recognize it and that's, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and some do and yeah. still get drawn back to that fire, get drawn back to the bow. Yeah. And I think it's a really cool thing. Um, before I let you go, because I know I want to get you on your fly. Why don't you guys have lunch before you leave this place? Lunch, um, uh, seriously, geez. Uh, what's next for knock on when you look forward, when you look forward, are you looking forward? I mean, are you looking to tomorrow? Are you looking to next year? Are you looking five years out? Do you have any sort, are you just in this, this sprint to do everything you're doing now better, add new things to the list of priorities? Like what's, what's ahead for knock on? I don't know. I feel like every time we think there's one little thing to go ahead, it actually uh-huh. like it opens four other doors yeah. and I want to run down every one yeah. and every single time. You're just like, I tell myself, don't dilute yourself to the point. And sometimes you have to re- reel yourself back in. Lucky, luckily my wife and my team helps me mm. at times reel this back in. But I just want to, me giving back to archery is what I'm passionate about. That's what I want to do. I want to give back to archery. I want to utilize my honestly like kind of a regenerated health Mm -hmm. and you know and like drive and i'm excited and i'm having a really good time people are supporting our brand and our mission and you know our mission is to make all bow hunters better through in-depth education Mm -hmm. custom design products and you know and inspiring content that's that's our mission statement and dude right now partners like like black rifle or PSE, you know, people that are, Mm -hmm. that we all know, they're pretty much loving what we're giving back to the Mm -hmm. industry. And they're saying, how do we help you with that? So I think our path is really whatever we want to make it to be, but I can tell you this, I'm only going to do what makes me, if, if I'm passionate about it, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. And for right now, um, it's going to be a struggle for people to like, past me because i'm not you know my foot's on the pedal there's a (laughs) lot of content coming there's more to come and you know we're going to do a better job at at uh you know letting our brand help people that's kind of the hopes awesome awesome love it man love it and you're out here for tack 
Total Archery Challenge. So people should definitely go knock on archery.com, Total Archery Challenge, I think it's dot com as well. Yeah. Um, check out those events. How do people know which events you're going to be at? Because if you go on Total Archery Challenge, you have the different different venues. Yeah. Does it say which ones that you're going to be at on there? We have to do a better job at like putting my, making my schedule current on our website because uh. there is a schedule section. Um, I've been going to the ones where we're able to have our own range and mm. not all places allow for the uh, extra range, which which is why I don't do them all. Um, but the ones we do, I think we do really, really well. Um, but yeah, for, for our website, it's knock on archery.com and YouTube is knock on archery, but for Instagram, it's knock on TV, which kind of goes back to the start of the brand was, you know, (laughs) was that TV side, you know, which then gave me the platform to have 25 minutes to educate. And honestly, once the net will, this, at first, the network wasn't convinced that me giving education was what people wanted to watch. Yeah. They actually tried to limit it. And then we ended up leaving network after six years to go digital because I wanted to have no time limits. They were mm. only allowing me two minutes and 30 seconds to do any type of equipment education or mm. technique education on TV. Okay, It was like two minutes and 30 seconds. Other than that, they wanted like X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And... I knew everyone was watching us for the two and a half minutes, not the other X, Y, and Z. So when we decided to just say, hey, we're going to go digital and I'm going to do what what I want to do and what I'm passionate about, that's when when the floodgates opened because we proved what people wanted to consume from us. And that's easy for me because that is my passion is teaching people, making them better, Mm -hmm. and giving them the tools they need to get better you know, and seeing it on paper or yes. on a ta- on an animal. Yeah. So, Man. but it's been fun watching you do <laughs> it's, like, well, it's been yeah, a sprint. Yeah. I love it when the, when that Pelican case shows Oh, nice. It awesome. It well, thanks for shooting it this year. It was in yeah. the hand of the, you didn't tell me what it was. You said there's something like I'm gonna do something special with it. And the Yeti was holding it. Yep. And tink, that was awesome. Yeah. You shot it. That was so sweet. <laughs> Very Love cool, it. man. Well, thanks for having me out. Man, thank you so much for being here. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, I'll get back to one attack at some point uh, in the future because I absolutely love it. And uh, it's such a great event. But thanks so much for, for taking the time. Thank you for all you do, uh, not just for, for archery, for bow hunters, um, but for veterans as well. I mean, invaluable. Can't thank you enough for all you've done for the veteran community. So thank you so much for everything, brother. All right. Thanks, Jack. All right. Take care. Black Rifle Coffee Company. You can help Black Rifle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the boot campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The boot campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle in the boot campaign from May through the end of the year where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle Ready-to-Drink Coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store, and no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community, and with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. 
Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. A lot to go through today before I kick it off with some of the archery because John Dudley was today's guest of knockonarchery.com. Awesome guy. First off, this shirt though, Inglorious Amateurs. Go check them out. Uh, they have a uh, fairly significant and firm touch point with the intelligence community, and they make some have some really cool stuff. So, Inglorious Amateurs, uh, you can check them out online. If you know a little bit about the history of the CIA, OSS, well, the shirt then will mean something. So, all right, <laughs> archery. Here we go. John Dudley, bam, this is the bow we talked about today on the podcast. This is the NTN 33 right there, knock-on custom, and I love this bow right here. Got some Sitka camo on this one, and very cool that John Dudley was able to essentially design this thing from the ground up. And as we talked about, he has four different models with PSE right now, and uh, you can go and check those out. They're all at different price points, and that, done very intentionally to get people into archery, and... That's mine right there. Absolutely love it. You might also recognize it from the opening credits to the terminal list on Amazon Prime Video starring Chris Pratt. So you can check that out there. And these are the arrows that Dudley made for me and pretty cool right there. It has the, the trident right there. And uh, yeah, very cool. Knock on. Awesome. Speaking of arrows, uh, the night before, I'd been shooting them quite a bit and doing uh, total archery challenge type courses, and I had destroyed uh, a few arrows. So I think it was a couple days before CBS came out here and did a little, a little shoot with me, a um, little interview. Uh, I wanted to shoot the PSE bow, so Dudley sent me overnighted a bunch of new arrows and I was out there with Jeff Glore from CBS this morning. You can find that interview. I think I put it on my Instagram, but I think I put it on my, uh, uh, YouTube as well, but they wanted to get some B roll stuff. So I was out there with Jeff Glore from CBS this morning and we were doing a little archery and he asked if I could shoot the GoPro that was on one of my targets and I let it fly. And so one of John Dudley's arrows right there, right through the GoPro. And what we thought, we thought we'd be able to get the slow-mo from this, going the arrow coming right into the GoPro, but uh, didn't happen that way. Went right through, but somehow jacked everything up. So we don't have the actual footage of it going into the camera, which would have been really cool. But anyway, thank you, CBS. Uh, that's my little memento from that interview. And what else did we talk about? We talked about these Leupold rangefinders, and uh, there's one that's archery specific, but this is the uh, the RX 2800, and love this thing. So Leupold always knocking it out of the park. Very cool. And let's see, what to go to next? Oh, before I do that, right there. This is the release that I use right here is the knock to it. Uh, we talked about the silverback. We talked about the knock to it, the history behind these releases, but go to knockonarchery.com, check them out. Absolutely love this release. And uh, you always need a couple though, because what happens if you lose it? Good to have a backup. Two is one, one is none. I've heard that somewhere before. So right there, love this release. And knives. Oh, Jason, pro knife thrower. Check him out on Instagram. Look at that blade. That thing is crazy. 
And this is a throwing knife that he made for me. So I haven't thrown it yet. Uh, he's going to give me some instruction at some point. But, man, I cannot wait to let this thing fly. It's taking all my self-control not to just try to put it in the wall across the room here. But look at that thing. Awesome. So, Jason, thank you so much. This is sincerely appreciated. Cannot wait to let this thing fly. So, very cool. Yesterday, did a little shoot with... Uh, a uh, three gun Kenzie. So Kenzie Fitzpatrick, you can find her at three gun Kenzie on Instagram. And, uh, Oh, there's some patches right there that she gave me. We did a little shoot down at the park city gun club for Athlon outdoors. They do a free gun Friday. We did some filming around that. It was awesome to get to shoot with Kenzie and you can check out her podcast, which is called reticle up. Look at that right there and be sure to follow her on instagram as well bam three gun kenzie look at that awesome thank you for those and thank you also for this very cool gift hunters h uh, hunters gold hd uh i think that's what these glasses are called but hunters gold glasses and yeah these are really cool so check those out they have a bunch of different models and uh kenzie gave me these yesterday very cool I tried them out yesterday and they were awesome so be sure and check them out hunters gold and also athlon outdoors ballistic magazine you can find uh what we talked about in that filming yesterday at uh, athlon outdoors so be sure and check them out and check out their free gun friday because possibility of a free gun and we also shot these these are the black hills honey badger nine mil so shot this yesterday for the first time and if you're watching this look at that can you see that right there that is aggressive uh, this is pretty sweet, and they left <laughs> some pretty cool holes in the targets as well. So anyway, I'm a big fan of Black Hills. If you've read the books, uh, then you know that, or if you uh, shot their 77 grain down range, 5.56 back in the day, then you're probably a fan of Black Hills as well. So this is the Honey Badger ammunition from Black Hills, and check them out. I was very impressed yesterday. All right. What else do we have here? Navy water polo. Look at this. Navy water polo from Annapolis. They sent me this uh, water polo camp. And on the back, the only easy day was yesterday. Yep. Navy water polo. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Keep crushing it out there. And this. Leslie. So Leslie's fine art on Instagram. She saw a picture I took uh, at the back of the house, and she painted it for me. So very cool. She also saw a picture from uh, a trip I did to Russia a couple years back for research into my third novel, Savage Sun. And she it was a, a fishing hunting trip for research. And if you read the novel, then you know how that plays in. But uh, she saw one of the pictures that I posted and she made it a really cool painting of one of the photos from that trip. So Leslie, thank you so much. Once again, Leslie's fine art on Instagram. Very cool. Thank you for this. And look at this, Allegiance Flag Supply. Definitely check out Allegiance Flag Supply. American flags made where? In the United States of America. Oh, yeah. So this is a Jack Carr edition right there. You can find this on my website, officialjackcar.com. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner. So very cool. What a great group of people. And, uh, yep, creating American jobs made in the USA right there. And these are some high-quality American flags. So check them out for sure. And what do we have here? SIG. So this right here is a P320 from the Custom Works shop, but it's also the concierge 
uh, version of that pistol. So that means you can go to customworks6hour.com and you can go to concierge service for the P320. They also have it for the 365 now. And you can pick out each part of your pistol and create one for you. So this is mine right here. And this thing's pretty sick. So go check that out. Once again, 6hour.com, uh, custom works section and concierge service for P320. And I think there's one more thing. Oh, ho, ho, ho. look at this. Bravo Company USA. Awesome. And whew, this, I have a few Bravo Company AR type weapon systems and put them in the novels. And they've also put an aim point on here for me that has the, the Bravo Company markings and it's the T2. And check that thing out. Look at that. They put the cross tomahawks on there for me. That was very cool. I had no idea that this was coming. So this was a surprise yesterday at the gun shop at uh, Park City Gun Club. So Bravo Company, man, thank you guys. This thing is legit. I'll probably add a light to it, add a Viking Tactics sling to it, and uh, maybe some irons front and rear. But uh, wow, this thing is amazing. I love the magazine right there as well, but... Look at that. That's just sick. So thank you guys. Bravo Company USA. Awesome. All right. I think that's everything for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad Original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about John Dudley, go to knockonarchery.com and be sure and link to his social channels, Knock On TV on Instagram and Knock On Archery on YouTube. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click in the upper right-hand corner on Shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. <laughs> <laughs>